What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Glenn. Mm. I reckon we have a bit of a showdown, me and you. Really? Yeah. Okay. Really find out who's a better trainer. Ooh, now you've fucking thrown the cat amongst the pigeons, haven't you? Yeah. I reckon we get puppies, mm. brothers or something like that, okay. and have a bit of a competition, see who can raise it the best. Okay. So now that you've thrown the gauntlet out there, where are you thinking that we're going to get these magnificent specimens from? I want to get duchies right. or shepherds. Yep. So if we're going to get them, the only place in the world that anybody should be looking to get mm. a German Shepherd or a Dutch Shepherd from is House Hamburg Shepherds in Germany. Oh, good call. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I like this. All right. So now that we've got the dogs, yeah. what's the next part of the evolution? Well, the good news is mm-hmm. they they can send those Shepherds anywhere in the world. Yep. So what about we get one sent here to Australia? Right. You'll train that one. Okay. And I'll get one sent to myself in North America. Mm-hmm. But we're going to need training equipment to train those dogs. Right. So I guess that I have to go and talk to the bullfed. Yeah. So your gear, all your dog training needs, Mm -hmm. because we'll start fresh. We'll get all new everything. Everything. All your dog training needs will be met by Ironswick Dog Quip. Oh, the bullfed himself. Yeah. Okay. So I can get myself some mills, some great leads, some collars. All that Training stuff. devices, treats, balls, whatever I need. Yeah, you'll be able yep. to get that from Ironswick because yep. you're going to be here in Australia. Well, that means that you have to go up north, further north yep. in, in North America yep. and go and see old mate Mach Le Point. Yep. And get everything from Canine everything. Dynamics. Oh, Canine Dynamics. Yep. Yep. I'll get the leashes I need, the tugs I need, everything. I think I can even get bite suits. Everything. Yeah. I can get that from Canine Dynamics. Yep. From in North America. Mm-hmm. There is one- Part of this that is somewhat unfair. Well, you get to hang out with Melanie Benware. Yeah. So I'm actually going to get my dog. Tra- I'm not going to do any of the training. Yep. <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to get a play and train mm-hmm. done where Mel's actually just going to come to my house because I'm going to take that dog to Richmond, Virginia. Yep. Ashland, Virginia Ashland. as well. Ashland, Ashland Virginia. Virginia. Yep. So everything both there is. Yeah. Uh, I can be either one of those mm. and I'm just going to go do something else nine to five and she'll come into my home Train that dog. Well, you're sipping cafe just, lattes. Just, just gallivanting yeah. all over Gallivanting. The <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio today by my co-host, Glenn Cook, and joining us on the line is a man who's been talked about a lot on the show, but mm. never talked to. For our 200th episode, we've got Boyd Hooper. Boyd, welcome to the show. Thanks for doing it. Thanks, guys. Happy to be here. Great to have you, mate. And as you said, this is our 200th show. I'm honoured. Yeah, so we, mate. We've got to talk to many of the different mentors that we've been influenced by, and Bart Bellin certainly been a very strong influence to Pat and somewhat to me as well. You're my original mentor. I've talked about you multiple times on the show. And it's about time we bloody well got you on here to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself to the audience. 
to be honest about it, just so your listeners know, Glenn has sort of been on my case to one degree or another over an extended period of time. So it's been my fault that I haven't been on. It's certainly not Glenn's. And I often hear that uh, my name comes up and I've heard you guys talking about, I've listened to many of your podcasts, which I really enjoy. You want me to give just a sort of a rundown on my history around dogs and the like? Boy, let's go back to the start. We were just talking before we started recording. You said that you've been in this more than 40 years, which is two more years than I've been alive. When you and Glenn met, I was busy learning how to walk. (laughs) So so let's go right back to the start. How is it that you even got into dogs at all? Give us the rundown on that. Okay. Well, firstly, my family was a sort of a dog-orientated family. Almost all my baby pictures, there is our black lab in the pictures from like literally they had the dog before I was born. And my first dog is just in virtually every baby picture. Quite often my parents are not in the picture. It's just me and the dog in the bassinet and, you know, in the crib and that sort of stuff. Do you remember that dog's name? Tweety. 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 Yes. Tweety. Yes. So, a long time ago, you know, we, it was before the name Rambo or Rocky came into the equation because the, those Ragnar. people didn't exist at that stage. Right? Ragnar is the Ragnar, new, yeah. yeah. Ragnar. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yep. Right. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. You have to be a certain generation, don't you? you yeah. I mean, she died when I was fairly young. I'm, I'm thinking, I do remember her being alive, but I was probably only about I don't know, five or six or something when she died, but we immediately replaced her with another dog named Misty, which again was another black lab. And then I had another dog, which was a mutt. Doogie was his name. There was never a time when I was growing up that I wasn't with dogs. And I lived in an environment, Glenn, you probably know Kylie Bright, who's a name that's familiar to many of you out there, I'm sure. Mm. You know, Kylie lived in the same neighbourhood as me. You know, when Kylie was a kid, you know, she used to ride her horse bareback into my house and just drop in for a visit and stuff, you know, when she was probably, I don't know, about 13 or something like that. So these are the days when somebody would come on a horse to your house. I mean, I'm not that old. It's not like it's 100 years old, but it was still a bit of the remnant of the past. And before we kicked off, I was saying that I'm lucky enough to have been in the industry for long enough where I can see that sort of transition from the old to new. And I can appreciate from all the perspectives because I actually lived it and I actually worked with and met and interacted with a lot of the people from the early days. But yeah, so then um, I left school, as you know, Glenn, like yourself, went into, I was in, Glenn was an electrician, I was in electronics, so did an apprenticeship as an electronics tech. When I was 17, I was very heavy involved in the martial arts from even before that, seriously involved. Part of my nature is the things that I get into, I get very committed to. So mm-hmm. probably had about half a dozen different things that I've been involved with, or maybe not, maybe four things that I've been heavily involved with in my life. Dogs has been the consistent one, but as you know, Glenn, and in fact, we met I think I was your early martial arts instructor. I think you were involved in Sanchi Kai. Yeah. That was your first martial art, wasn't it? No. no wasn't. It wasn't. Okay. No. Sanchi Kai was my first martial art. So I knew, you know, like um, I'd been over to Ringwood and trained with Mel Lomax mm. and, yeah. you know, Phil Davies obviously was my boss with the electrical right. group. So, yeah. you know, Phil was a bit of a legend in, in martial arts around that time. And, you know, of course you sort of surfaced, at that time, because I think at, at that time you were doing Sanchi Kai and kickboxing and you just won the Australian Championship or something like that. Yeah. What year was that? I'm thinking 89 or that, something Yeah, like that, that. No, no, it would have been earlier than that. It would have been probably mid-80s. I won the title in 89, I think, from oh, okay, okay. But anyway, I mean, obviously I was heavily involved in things before that. One thing I should preface this with, do not go accurately on the dates and times. Okay? <laughs> it, it, it's a long, as Pat pointed out, 
we're having discussions here when Pat was either before Pat was born or when he was a kid. It's yeah. not easy. And I don't track the exact times. Okay. So they're just approximations. Anyway, the point being is that I was heavily involved. And at that time, my one of my martial arts instructors was a guy named Ray Jones, not Alec Jones. Mm. So just, right, this is pre-Alec, okay, another guy named Ray Jones, not related. And he had a dog, a German Shepherd named Ninja, and he was training at Neville and George's club. And so when I was 17 and I was training with him, I came with him up to a dog club. It was an obedience and protection dog club, the Victorian Guard Dog Training Centre it was called. But they did obedience and some tracking and stuff like that as well. I was 17 and I didn't have a working dog then. I just had two dogs I mentioned earlier. And, yeah, so I started training with his dog and got pretty involved. That's where I met Chris Kotso, right? Um, He was the same age as me and we both started actually at that club at at 17 and that's where we actually first met. His dad used to take him there with his Doberman pup that he got from Neville. And then when I turned 18, I was really keen on it, so I immediately bought a dog off Paul Fifield. I bought a Roddy first. Not that long after that, maybe within about six months or so, I realised that Roddy really wasn't what I wanted and wasn't good enough. So I bought a German Shepherd named Zen and I had both those dogs. They were both adults. I bought them both as adults. Then um, I got pretty heavily involved with it. I bought, when I was around 20, I bought one of Adam West's, you know, Adam and Paula, mm. Paula Cochran. Many people would know in the if you're into Roddy, she would definitely know those names. In their, their very first litter ever that they had, uh, there was three males. They kept one. Uh, Adam kept one. I got one and Neville got one. Dog's name was Rip. You might remember Rip from your very early days with me. I'm not sure if you would, but I got pretty seriously into it pretty quickly, got heavily involved in training. I was using the dogs in security type applications. I'd finished my apprenticeship and stuff by then. Now I'm sort of we're talking around the sort of 19 to 20 years of age type thing. I was doing security with my dogs, working for George and those guys, security patrol work and um, you know, security jobs and stuff. One interesting one is they were building the light towers then at the MCG. Back then, stadiums weren't lit, okay? So this was sort of the first stadium in Melbourne to get lit and they built the light towers and worked there with my dog doing patrols overnight and those types of things and had a, a run of like car yards and um, places like that where dogs were in overnight and then I'd get up really early in the morning, go around and lock the dogs up as you guys, you know, the junkyard dog sort of thing was heavily involved in that, very involved with training. Not long after that, around the time we were in our early 20s, you know, maybe even around 20, I think it was probably around 20, Neville and George closed that club. They just got sick of it and were focusing on other things. So Chris and I started, we sort of collected the people up and started training them We just opened a new location over that side of town, northern suburbs in Melbourne, and kept sort of training. And then as time went by, I decided, well, let's get one on this side of town as well, and we opened up that. And also around that time is when I started training with uh, Rod Mariff, who, Mm. again, Cookie, you know very well. Mm -hmm. Um, He was the head obedience trainer of the Roddy Club and very experienced competitor in, in obedience and things like that. And I was just living out that side of town. So as it turned out, I sort of hooked up with him and then we set up a little sort of business arrangement together where we would uh, do boarding and training and also be training dogs to sell. So we were buying dogs and training them up and uh, some breeding stuff there. So he was an early mentor of mine in a lot of ways. Rod's an old man now. He's, how old would he be, Glenn? 83 oh, he'd, or 80, he'd, have, he'd have to be, yeah. 
he sold out a homestead a while ago, which I never thought I'd actually see the day to, mm. to a mm. friend of mine called Scott Went, really good guy who's, you know, mm. like taken it to the next level and done great things down there. Um, yeah, I hear good things, yeah. Yeah, no, you he's know, done Pete's, a great job. Pete Sievert works for him down yeah, there, you know, yeah, as a yeah. trainer. So Yeah, I put in a good word for Pete with Scott. Mm. So yeah. that's a like a 50,000-foot view of your early career and how you got into it. There's a couple of things that came to mind while you were talking. Working security with dogs in Melbourne in the 80s, there'd have been some bites. So <laughs> if you can, what was your first experience with a live dog bite? Because I think that's one of the things that these days in the security industry, we don't probably don't get a lot of because it's kind of a big deal for a dog to bite someone these days. By the time, like for the muzzle to come off within your escalation of force, that's a really big deal these days. And you don't hear too much about people getting live bites. In fact, I know lots of police, I know lots of security handlers that have never had a bite. You try to avoid it. Yeah. But back then, I imagine there probably was some bite. So if you can remember, and if it's appropriate, can you tell us about your first experience with a dog that bit someone for realsies? I'm not sure if I can actually remember the very first time, because to be honest with you, Pat, you're right on the money there. In fact, and Glenn knows this because he was a part of it from the early 90s. I mean, the bites were regular, you know, and I completely agree with everything you just said. I mean, it hardly ever happens these days. Dogs are used a lot less than they used to, and obviously it's a much more PC world. But, oh, my God, we we would have, uh, you know, endless amounts of bites. I, I remember one of the major ones. I was working at a over near the um, Paran Market, which is a big sort of outdoor market that's been around for years where people buy their veggies and stuff like that. You know, it's, a, you know, the type of thing that I'm talking about. And I was working there one night and they had a like almost like a melee, a riot in the street and it was probably about 50 people and it was full on street fighting and, you know, one of those things you see really only in movies. They just These types of things just don't really happen anymore. Mm-hmm. And I had the dog there and he must have had about six or seven live bites, but the worst one, since you asked, Pat, okay, so you're obviously <laughs> looking for something a bit juicy, it actually ripped the calf muscle out of the back of his leg. Yeah, so right. he, he was latched on and, you know, in the fight, it actually ripped the calf muscle off the back of his leg. And the police were actually directing me where to deploy the dog. That's how bad it was, you know, and uh, it was pretty full on. And another story about a guy, Greg, who was working for me, working at a nightclub, KT's, Glenn, is that what it was called in Knox there? Yeah, yeah, Knox Tavern, yeah, Yeah. KT's, yep. Yeah, yeah, KT's, yeah, yeah. And his dog bit a guy pretty nastily, but the the guy kicked the dog, and as a result of that, this is Kane, and then the dog Mm. bit him quite severely, and it went to court, and the judge ended, and this is how the world is different, you know, the judge, this was the finding at the end of it, the judge said, well, you kicked the dog and the dog bit you, so I'm just going to call it square. Okay? <laughs> and, and uh, yeah, nothing came of it. And I remember one time, I think Glenn was on the way to training one time and a bit of a road rage sort of scenario, and he had Harley, his dog, in the back seat, and somebody reached in, and I don't know whether they hit him or grabbed him, I can't quite remember, but anyway, bad move because Harley came in from the back seat and just literally latched onto his forearm and just ripped him to shreds. It's the PSA you know, carjacking in real life. Yeah, really, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. To quickly intervene with that, what happened was I used to work for Boyd at that stage and a guy down at the training centre was giving up his dog. So Boyd gave me a company car. I had like a Toyota Hilux with a canopy on the back. And Harley would usually be in the canopy. But for this day, I picked up a, a Rottweiler, a guy down at our Springvale club said, do you want this dog? I don't want him anymore. And I assessed him. I said, yeah, yeah, I'll definitely take him. So chucked him in the back, put Harley in the back seat, and I'm driving down the road. 
And there's a bunch of guys in Springvale. It's a, it can be a pretty dicey area sometimes. Long story short, there was a guy yelling something at me at the window because Harley was barking at him because he was staring at him and calling out to him. And I just said, mate, just stop doing what you're doing and he'll stop barking at you. And uh, he didn't like that. So he jumped out of the car and he, you know, he came to the side of the door and I, I looked over and he was standing there and he said, what'd you say? I said, mate, hop back in the car. There's no need for this. And I wasn't agitating the situation. And um, yeah, he threw a swing at me. Like he hit me in the ear, but I literally just managed to block his hand. And as I did that, Harley went bang and grabbed him on the forearm and he held him so tight that the guy, like I shit myself. I'm not, it was the first time anything like that happened to me. And I started driving off down the road <laughs> and his, his feet were on the side of the panel of the car while Harley was holding onto him. That's how hard he actually had him. Yeah. And um, he was shaking him and there was, you know, I, I, I don't want to make this sound any more gory than it was, but you know, there's blood all over me and all over the front of the car and everything like that. Yeah. And um, I was in shock, like literally in shock. And I just said to him, out, and Harley let him go, and I just saw him tumble down the road. I rang Boyd, and I was supposed to go to this other centre. I rang Boyd and said, oh, this has happened. What do I do? And Boyd just goes, eh, it's all right. Just go to the police. And <laughs> So I've walked in there covered in blood, literally. Yeah. You know, like everyone's come running out. And they said, what's happened? And I pulled them in and – I'm describing what's happening and the police were actually smiling, yeah. like going, oh, yeah. And I'm saying, what's going to happen to my dog? You know, am I in trouble? And they said, oh, no, he assaulted you. We'll, we'll charge him with assault. Yeah. So um, they actually did find him in in, uh, in hospital. And yeah. yeah, he was pretty fucked up. And The only thing missing that he had a jug full of rocks and was screaming, exactly. get that dog out of here. The thing is, to be honest, Glenn was quite shaken up by the whole thing. I do remember after the fact that it was uh, – just the whole kind of experience was, uh, you're obviously fairly young there, Glenn, but uh, it was one other story one. that I'll Th- just tell you. Thing. It was Pat, the first one. Yeah, yeah. Mm. One other story, Pat, I'll tell you. In the mid-90s, I don't remember the year, but I'm thinking it was around 96 or 97, that we had the docks dispute. Um, it, I think yeah. it was pretty much, it was a, it was sort of Melbourne and Sydney-wide. Mm. It was effectively the unions versus the docks. And as Glenn will tell you, because he was involved in it, we were, we I guess you want to say me, okay? So my company was contracted to supply the dogs and we supplied them in both Melbourne and Sydney, but I was obviously I was down in Melbourne. And to put it in perspective, at the busiest time, we were running 18 man and dog teams 24 hours a day. And so we were doing 12-hour shifts. So it was 18 guys in the day shift and man and dogs and 18 man and dog teams over the night shift and doing 12 hours. And I remember that Glenn and I did one 36-hour shift mm. together. So we just, instead of going home for our 12-hour shift, we just literally stayed through and worked 36 hours straight because we needed the, the staff. It was just, I literally remember, it was only Glenn and I that stayed for that time. Everybody was working their ass off. But you know, the Wharfies, as you know, the, the unions and the Wharfies, they're, they're as tough as it gets. They're the real deal. And we would have a line of a dozen dogs, man and dogs, to hold back these guys. And they were throwing missiles at us, you know, cans and bricks and things like that. And we were putting the dogs in. The police were behind us. So the dogs were the front line. And, uh, yeah, they, they weren't afraid to get bitten. So, that, you know, they, they, it is a different world. There's no doubt about it. But, yeah. yeah, many instances of those types of bites in situations. Another time where I actually had my dog deployed on a guy in a car and I ended up getting stabbed in the arm because he had a knife on him. We just tried to extract him out of the car and while we were getting him out, nothing too serious, just stitches and stuff like that. In the hand, actually, it was. Still got the scar. Yeah, so plenty of action back in the day. Yeah, so sure. it's but- not that I want to hear gory stories, but I, th- I feel like I know a little bit of that history and it's 
it's worth bringing up just to kind of establish your pedigree and the things you've done in the dog training world, because there's, there isn't certainly in Australia, there isn't that kind of action going on currently. And there isn't people that have that corporate knowledge on that many live bites. Like that's just not something that we see. You might get a particular area that, you know, and certainly in other parts of the world, you still get that kind of thing where a dog has multiple live bites throughout its career or, or multiple a week. I know dogs that work in areas of the States that get multiple bites a week, but in Australia here, it's just not a thing. It's mm. just not something that we see. And, and, and I think it's really important to remember that we have people that did do that and have the knowledge of that and can use that going forward. The other thing I wanted to ask you, mate, was like, as you started in dogs and you started going this club and then you kind of just skipped to the next bit of the club shut down. So we started our own club with you and Chris, mm. where was it in that journey that you were like, Oh, I'm good at this. And this is what I'm really going to focus on because like, I imagine, you know, then this is pre NDTF. Cause I'm sure we'll get to the point of you starting the NDTF, but this was pre there being a school for that. This is pre that you could get on the internet. There was no internet. You couldn't just get on and have a look at like, what's the technique that people are up to, right? It's books at that point and, and the dog culture wasn't anywhere near as connected. Like right now you're talking to 40,000 people, right? So like it wasn't anywhere near as connected as it is now. When and how was it that you came to think, fuck, this is something I'm really interested in and I'm going to put in the study effort to get good at this? Let me just jump back for a couple of seconds to the point that you made. One of the advantages of talking about what we talked about from the history is also for people to understand that I've been there through the evolution of the process. And I think that is important because I can give a good perspective of why. Like one of the things, as I said, I talk about if we didn't have the dogs were different, the world was different. And as a result, I'm sure people when they had slaves going back a couple of hundred years ago, well before the thing, it, it was kind of the norm and nobody really thought at the time that it was wrong. That's an extreme example of what I'm talking about. So I don't want people to think that I advocate for that type of mentality. In fact, I'm pretty anti those types of dangerous dogs. And, you know, Glenn will tell you some of the dogs that I owned, then often that Glenn would look after Mac, the Roddy, mate, and Sabre and, you know, those types of mm. dogs. You, you remember, Glenn, they were, they were serious, really serious dogs. Yeah, because I originally got in. them and you took them. <laughs> no, no, but that was our, that was my job. I worked for you and I mean, I fielded the dogs and, and I showed them to you and you said, yep, I want that dog. And then you, yeah, you know, like it was our business to, sorry, mate, just to cut in on that, just so people know and they understand the, the timeline of the experience. I was working for Boyd full time at that stage and my job was, which was good because we would buy and sell dogs for law enforcement and even rescue a lot of dogs that were going to be put down and put them into working homes. You know, like people would come to us as brokers, which we were, and say, you know, like I've got this dog, I'm, I'm either going to put him down or if you, you're interested in him, you can have him or take him or buy him or whatever it was. So, you know, like a couple of these dogs came on board and Boyd and I would have a debrief. He'd come down and help me train the dogs. And um, I'd say to him, mate, I've got a list of good dogs. You should have a look at these ones. And there were a couple of dogs there. He said, yep, I want that dog as my personal dog. So that's where some of these dogs came mm. from. You know, like people mm. would roll up to the training center. They'd be on the back of the utes or something like that. I'd go out and do a field test with the dog, test the dog on the sleeve or the suit. And um, I'd say, yep, bring the dog down the back. We'll take it on. And that was kind of how we conducted our business. And, you know, we had security and we had law enforcement, private and, and government and, you know, international contracts at times, New Guinea and, and other places where they'd come over and, and look at them all and say, yeah, I want five or one or whatever it was. So it could be private, it could be whatever it was. But out of many of my jobs, that was one of the most fun times, that job, being down the back of 
Kilsyth and that Central Springs mm. work area and that little kennel we had, that was a really cool job. There was a lot that happened there and there's a lot of history and a lot of, it was a birth ground for a lot of people because we had the training centers up the top, but a lot of stuff happened there all the time, every single day, like a lot of dog work, a lot of hours where we would really get in there and test theories and so forth. So it was a big moment in time for all of us. And Pat, if you're wondering where Glenn learned to talk and talk and talk, he learned that from me. (laughs) (laughs) Just sort of to finish up what you're saying there, I acknowledge that those dogs from back then the use case lent itself perfectly to that one-dimensional wrecking ball of a dog that was so common of the time. And I think now modern society and even the modern battle space for militaries and so forth, it just doesn't allow for that type of dog. In fact, its usability is massively reduced. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. yeah. And I've got modern, really good working dogs, and I wouldn't call them aggressive by nature, generally speaking. You know, they're, they're much more prey orientated. They would still do the job, no problems, especially in a military or tactical sort of scenario where the dog is hunting, but he's really hunting humans in the same way that a dog might hunt a rabbit almost, if you know what I mean. Yeah. It's not like it's personal. There's very little aggression in it, and uh, it's just sort of mission orientated. Maybe we'll go down that path a bit later. Yeah. One other quick point I want to bring up is that one thing that did come from that period, which I know Glenn has spoken about a couple of times on the podcast and people like Claude Batoni and others have always made that argument, is that one of the reasons why we have such a good grasp on aggression and all the stuff around that, you know, any term you want to put in there, okay, you know, whether you want to talk about sort of dominance and just put it in a big basket there, okay, is because we were involved with dogs at every levels of that. And Mm. I, I do think that there's a disadvantage for people in the modern era who are dealing with, say, aggression cases, you know, for unwanted aggression, where their whole experience around aggression is, in my opinion, fairly one dimensional because all they're doing is there's got a dog with unwanted aggression and they're trying to solve that problem when they've never worked with aggressive dogs. They've never had to build aggression. I don't mean to be derogatory here, but I don't think they have a really comprehensive understanding of what aggression is because they haven't uh, sort of lived and breathed it. And I know, again, Glenn, I've heard you talk about this and Claude has often put that argument forward is that it does pay if somebody is going to be dealing with aggression to have a bit of experience around, even if it's one of the dog sports, like, you know, what you guys are involved with and, um, and others to get a broader education on that process, which I'm sure we'll come to and I'm sure we'll run out of time. But now I'd like to flick back to answer the question directly. Okay. So firstly, Pat, I think it's pretty much in my nature, anybody who knows me and certainly Glenn knows me as well as most people do, I am a pretty focused and committed person and always have been. So the things that I got into, you know, like I I was heavily into martial arts from the time I was a teenager. I have black belts of various degrees in five different martial arts. As Glenn will tell you, I ran my own academy, so to speak, which is where I met Glenn and many people that Glenn will tell you who I'm still know from 30 years as a whole, uh, like Darren Davies, for example, Glenn, he's about your same era as you. And uh, Darren still trains with me regularly and others from back in the day, guys who I met through the martial arts. So when I got into martial arts, I was really serious into it, you know? And when I was in the military for a while, I 
you know, was really passionate and committed to it. And when I got into shooting, sport shooting, handgun shooting, IPSC, for those that know it, I, I got pretty serious about it. I probably got into that too late to be great at it. But, you know, I got to the point where I was multiple times on the state team, shot at the Australasian in a representative team, won the silver medal at the Australasians over there and shot at the world championships and things like that. You know, I'm that kind of guy that I'm either in or I'm not. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a sort of a token gesture sort of person. Mm -hmm. So pretty much from the time I got into dogs, I always loved dogs. And I actually sort of had a bit of an aspiration to do something with dogs when I was a teenager. I never really liked electronics. I didn't really enjoy my apprenticeship or anything like that. And as soon as I had an opportunity to get into dogs, I started training with Ray. And then as soon as I got my own dog, I pretty much jumped in 100%. And I was very athletic, even you know, because I was so heavily involved in the martial arts and, you know, the, the guys that sort of get into the special forces mindset, you know, you, you almost always come in with a pretty athletic sort of background. Mm-hmm. So I guess I had reasonable athleticism was an important part of the type of thing that we're talking about, especially when you're decoying. Glenn will tell you, I mean, there were days when Glenn was a young man and we would train and we would finish training, say, on a Thursday night, sometimes. Glenn is my witness here because it's good to have these first-hand witnesses, and I'm putting this on the public record. There were times when we didn't finish training until 2 o'clock in the morning, and I I would train, and Glenn will tell you, I, I would be in the suit, and I would work 40 or 50 dogs in a night session or on a weekend session. And that's a lot of dogs, you know, to and do the, 50 And the dogs. suit would steam when you took it off. Like I remember right. you taking the suit off and steam would just come out of the suit. Well, it used to take me two days to get my fluid balance back. You know, yeah. I'd wake up in the middle of the night really thirsty. I'd have to be drinking Powerades and stuff like that. I mean, we were managing it. So I was a very fit guy and a very committed and athletic and a bit of a natural physically. As a result of that, I got into it really seriously right from the word go, really loved everything about it. I loved dogs just for the, the sake and still do. I own 10 dogs, Pat, still today, right? right? Okay. You know, I have dogs in my house. I have, you know, I have spaniels. And I have labs. I have obviously Malinois, Dutch shepherds, German shepherds, crosses thereof, you know. I live on a property here. Glenn's been here. He knows my place, you know, and I have 10 dogs. And not only that, I have a whole lot of dogs that, sort of belong to me by default because they're company dogs, but mm-hmm. they don't live on the property. So there's another 10 or so of them in different applications where the people I work and train with have those dogs. So the combination of the physical side of it combined with the love of dogs, the intrinsic love of dogs, combined with something I could get my teeth into. And Pat, from what I've heard of about you, you're that kind of guy as well. You know, Mm -hmm. everything I've heard and seen from you, you're very much that way inclined. Glenn has got into various things, his motorbikes and his guitars and numerous other things through his life. And we are that type of people, a little bit, almost you might call us a little bit obsessive. And and, and Pat, you know, if you want to be any good in a special forces unit, if you're not a bit obsessive, you're absolutely wasting everybody's time. Yeah. Yeah, so I was into it very early. And some of the things I didn't talk about before, too, is I started breeding dogs reasonably early as well. I can't remember exactly how old I was, but sort of around that 20-year-old mark or so, I got into breeding Roddies and stuff because originally I was primarily into Roddies, Mm -hmm. primarily, although, you know, my second dog when I, by the time I was 18, I had a German Shepherd as well, and he was a great working dog. 
But, um, yeah, Roddies and Shepherds, but more Roddies to begin with, and then I transitioned into Shepherds, and then these days I'm more involved with males and duchies and stuff like that. But but I'm certainly not a breed snob, as I said. You know, so I still have labs. And well, while I've got you here, mate, and we're talking about this subject, I just want to confirm with you that there were actually good working Roddies in the area that you and I were heavily involved in the ADT days. Is that true or not? <laughs> oh, absolutely it is. And, and, and uh, yeah, it's funny because we have that conversation down here with uh, one of the guys, you know, part of my team down here. It's a guy named Shane Manka. He's a dog trainer yep. and a great guy. No, Shane. And, yeah, and Shane is uh, a kind of a roddy guy at heart, you know, and the other guys down here who are maybe into Malinois, for example, are always giving him shit about it. Mm. But, and I keep saying, well, you know, you remember Felix von Magneberg and stuff like that and, and Adam, the West, Adam and Paula's early stuff and that type of stuff. Yeah, they, the dogs were really, were very, very good. Kane, you know, I mean, how good was he? He yeah, was from he was Adam's. A, he was amazing. That, that he was Zen a small guard, dog, but he was an unbelievable working dog. I often tell people that old, you know, like some of those old Zen guard, Jager Seeger lines from Adam and Paula were, mm. were phenomenal and very influential. But, you know, that came from, as you said, Felix von Magdenberg, Echo, Jupe, Gruff, Ron Grutenblick, you know, like mm. those lines, anything with that sort of combination in that Roddy line, that was a guarantee that those dogs were going to work. It had to be in the right succession. Like, you know, people went – maniacal over it and started to double, triple line the breeding. And, you know, you could get some nerve issues from that. And depending which way you went with some of the doubling up or tripling up too much on Echo, for argument's sake, you could get some problems there as well. But if you got that combination right of Graf, Felix, Echo, those lines were almost guaranteeing you a high level, really strong working line, Roddy. So here's a question on that. Boyd, you currently provide dogs to all around the world probably, but I know in Australia to tier one units, SAS, two commando, Vic Pole, SOG, they've all got dogs, have currently or have had dogs from you. Imagine you could reach back. I, I've never directly supplied a dog to commando. They might have some of my dogs, oh, okay. but certainly the, the other elements, yes. Yeah, so for sure. You know what is required of a dog to hit that spec now, today. Imagine you can reach back through space and time and grab one of those Roddies could you put one of those dogs into one of those units today? Notwithstanding that I think a Roddy is a bit too heavy in build, generally speaking, especially the majority of them. I was going to say especially the modern ones, but it's probably not a really, you know, that's as a generalisation, I'd say maybe we moved away from it. Um, but, yeah, no no doubt about it. A dog like Glenn's old dog, Harley, was an absolute super dog. And Kane, that dog we were just talking about, who was a very small dog, you know, he was probably about a 35 kilo Roddy, but unbelievable working dog. I mean, uh, it's hard for me to even explain to you. Legendary. No, but I just yeah, want to yeah. clarify because we just spoke about how the the type of work from the 80s and 90s was different and the type of dog was different also. And that's what I'm curious about, like knowing if you could get one of those dogs that was employed in that in that role, are they capable of the modern role? Yes. And, and you'd say yes. Yes, I, unequivocally, yes. Yeah, yes, right. absolutely, they are. But – and this is sort of a bigger picture question. The two things I'll say, and I'll just I'll snapshot both of them, and you, we can double click on either of them, whichever direction you want to take it. But the first thing I, I'll say is selective breeding and conscientious breeding, and, and knowing what you're doing with breeding really does matter, which is what you were guys alluding to. And the second thing is. The, the training. So I'm, for want of a better word, in a lot of ways, I'm a bit of a perfectionist. I don't really mean it like that. I just don't have better words to explain that 
uh, you know, guys like Bart and Ivan and you guys, you know, we really have attention to detail around what we're doing and we're looking for really high end and we're looking for every edge and we're looking for technology and we're we're sophisticated in the way that we think and we're you know we're, we're deep thinkers about things etc you know dave croyer is another good example of that and and there are many i'm not saying they're not around so because we were engineering the dogs to the direction that we wanted them to go we were able to produce dogs that would have been able to go but i your point is those were the definitely the exceptions back then. So the very best dogs could have fitted in no problems into the modern era. But overall, there wasn't a lot of dogs that were that good in back in that day. Whereas now with the introduction, particularly of Malinois and Dutchies and things like that, we're getting a much broader base of, you know, better quality dogs around yeah. the place. By the way, a, a point comment that you made in your intro one time, Pat, at least, where you're saying if you want a good working dog, you have to take it out of Europe. Glenn will back me up on this. And I'll tell you two quick stories on this since we're telling stories, okay? So years ago, and Glenn won a a trophy at this uh, competition. It was an open competition. You would have loved it, Pat, okay? So, for example, in the obedience, you had, I think it was three minutes or something like that, freestyle. You had a couple of things. You had to be able to demonstrate a recall and a downstay just to put some sort of thing in it. But other than that, you could go. And we had people from ANKC Obedience, from Schutzen, people doing their own things. Glenn was a competitor in it. And then there was a protection element and it was freestyle. Again, you had three minutes to show what your dog could do. So you just built your own routine and you could have two decoys and you could do whatever you wanted to do. Glenn, in fact, won that section with with Harley. The point being is that we were very much training the dogs for these specific sort of applications, had a very open mind, diverse training, not locked into one sort of mindset. And one of the reasons why I get a bit frustrated around sport dog training is that I find that it's a little bit too pattern orientated for me. It's a bit too one-dimensional. I totally respect the sport dog people, but for me, I see a quite a clear separation between the sport and the real world. And I think that there is a bit of a, a misunderstanding about, I don't bother arguing with the people, but I think that a lot of the people in the sport world think that it's very close to the real world. And I don't see it as being that close to the real world. And uh, a, a good example is that as part of that little seminar series that we ran recently on the tracking we had a law enforcement guy down, very experienced guy who's done hundreds and hundreds of operational tracks and had dozens, if not hundreds of bites with his dog, very experienced uh, law enforcement guy. And he sort of had quite a different take on the way that things were. You know, there's obviously a lot of common elements. And the thing I love about the sport is the attention to detail. It's great for building timing and technique and You have to be very good at what you're doing. But for me, it's just a little bit too one-dimensional in that sort of that process. And that's why we set up that freestyle sport where you can say, well, instead of everybody just doing exactly the same thing and the routine is fixed, you've got three minutes, show us what you can do. And uh, Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's a a little bit of a sliding scale when you'd want to talk about 
then the type of sport and the type of real work, you know, because those are really, we're creating two categories where maybe there's hundreds of categories. So for sure, like one of the big examples I always talk to people about is say IGP style tracking will get you killed in the real world. But no one in IGP really thinks that's how you would track someone for realsies because an IGP dog should lead you into an ambush. Even if he knows that the person he's tracking is going to make two right hand Mm -hmm. turns here, he's got to hit every footstep along the way. And in the real world, you want a dog to absolutely lift his head, air scent and say, hey, I know where the guy is. Let's go in a straight line to him rather than following his path, which is, you know, he's walking us into a killing zone. So like, I totally agree. But I think that there's, it's a sliding scale, like PSA, for example, which is, you know, it's still a sport. It's absolutely a sport. It's not practicing for the real world, but it is surprise scenario based, right? So, you know, post the level one, you're going to find scenarios that you don't know. And in the level three, there is no written scenarios. There's a a list of criteria by which you're going to be assessed and how that's actually going to go down is decided on the day by the judge. And you get a walkthrough, which is, I think that's where we really still separate a difference between the sport and the real world is that in the sport, the handler still knows how it's going to unfold. Even though we only just found that out an hour ago, he still knows how it's going to unfold and he gets to play chess on the field and decide, okay, what's the, should I put my dog in a down or a sit here? Or should I heal my dog between my legs or on my left? You know, little things like that. And he can decide which is the best command to use in my out, whether I should recall the dog back to me or have him out and guard because I know that I'm going to be attacked from behind. Like there's little things like that. Whereas in the real world, you don't know any of that and you still have to just take it as it comes, you know, in every instance. But PSA would be the closest connected to the real world. Yeah. Uh, out of all the dog sports that I know of, and it, and I'm certainly not advocating that I'm a competitor or a professional or, you know, know everything about every other sport because there's a lot of sports that I've never been involved in, never walked on a field for. I've watched them, I've studied them, but I've never never competed in them. But PSA, I have. And, I, you know, like working streets and, and having dogs actually live engage people, I know that PSA, I would feel far better prepared being a competitor in PSA and allowing my dog to cross over from that into a real world application. There's no doubt in my mind that I would feel much safer in that application if that was what my career had to be. Yeah. I totally agree. Look, there's no doubt that PSA is a whole level better than uh, the other stuff that's out there for sure. Well, well um, we've got to be careful. We the, can't say better. We can say different. <laughs> no, we'll get I'm saying better by, from but, a real world scenario, yeah, yeah. right, as a comparative of real world. I'm not saying better or worse as far as technique goes or anything. I'm just saying that, and look, you know, Jerry's the main guy behind that, Jerry Bradshaw, for those that aren't aware. And, you know, Jerry's that way inclined. He's a nice sort of balanced guy. It's interesting if you read Jerry's book, even though it's really designed and he talks a lot about service dogs. And I see this with, you know, various people, whether it be Mike Ellis or people I have enormous respect for, who I still see, for want of a better term, and I don't mean to make this sound derogatory, but I still see some chinks in the armour in the way that they think and talk and the way that they do things because they're dragged, they're, they're sort of in that sport. And I was always super conscientious about that kind of thing. And that that kept me out of trying to get into the sports because I was always afraid that I would be dragged into the mindset. And, you know, Pat, you you know, like in the military, for example, if you do a climbing course, there's a lot of stuff in the climbing side of things that comes from sport climbing, you know, and and there was a lot of things that have been taught around that. And then a lot of shooting techniques these days came out of things like IPSC and competitive shooting for being quicker and 
you know, those types of things. Not everything by any means. So there's a lot of cross-pollination there, but you've got to know where the limitations of those processes are. You know, the vast majority of military and law enforcement trainers are very critical of sport dog training, and they find a lot of it highly counterproductive and irrelevant. And it really depends on what you want to get out of it, you know? Yeah. Um, so sometimes just, it's, it's nice to stick with non-dog related analogies because people get less upset about it. It's less personal. So on mm. that with the shooting, when I was at the Special Forces Training Center, we got an IPSC guy to come in and run a bit of a shooting package for us. And it was great. Some of the things that he said were great. And we were like, dude, we're changing holus bolus. Like we are 100% going to do that now. And there were other things that we said, we we're like, you're a fucking idiot. There's no way we're doing that. And it was the mature conversation around that. And it was things like dumping magazines early and stuff like that. I was like, dude, I ca- I'm only carrying two of them. Like in the real world, I'm only carrying two mags in my pistol. I'm not dropping it with eight rounds still left in it because I might need those eight rounds. And I don't like, I That's can't. That's a beautiful analogy. The trouble is you have to kind of know what you're talking about in shooting to get that. We're getting a little bit sort of, uh, <laughs> We're getting a bit I, I completely <laughs> appreciate that. A quick example, we got asked by a special operations police unit to run some training and myself and another guy who the other guy is not a tactical guy at all. He's purely IPSC, but multiple time national champion, uh, multiple time New Zealand champion, really, really good shooter and, and very, very good shooter, you know, world-class shooter. And I sort of cringed you know, when we were running the training, because I kept thinking to myself, oh, they're going to hate that. Oh, they're, mate, you're missing the point there, you know? And that, yeah, it is hard for them to do that. What I'm suggesting is that I think that there are a percentage of people, like Jerry, for example, he's probably the best example that we can use to disassociate it here a little bit, who really does understand the real world scenarios, but I still feel that he sort of gets dragged into it a little bit. So by way of example, because I felt like, your argument, Pat, I t- definitely agree with, but I feel like we were having, we were arguing about two slightly different things. Sure. We weren't exactly talking about the same thing. So the thing that I'm saying with sport is that are there things that you are doing that are intrinsic into what you are training the dog to do and the technique? It could be something to do with the way you handle or the way the dog works that potentially are intrinsically counterproductive potentially for the dog that you would want it to do in the real world. Okay. So a good example, do you know horse, mate? Yep. You know, I know, yep. Um, yep. So horse was sort of the, one of the founding fathers of tactical dogs in Australia. He's a former SAS operator, very experienced, many tours. And, you know, in my opinion, he was he's sort of the godfather of tactical deployment dogs in Australia. He was one of the first guys that went over and worked with the Delta teams and stuff like that to learn about it, et cetera. And Horse, you know, in the, in the time that Horse and I have worked together, he did some work for me when we were training the feds and we, him and I would go up to Canberra together and be training them there. He's been down here many times. We talk a lot. We get into really deep and meaningful discussions. And, for example, even he's not even a big fan of the dog holding a lot of focus because he says, I would never want my dog to be completely paying focus to me. I need my dog scanning in the front. Even the development of really strong focus is arguably counterproductive in a lot of real world applications. I'm using that as a simple one because there are a myriad of others. And you did mention one about the tracking. And I agree, that's another beautiful example of that. And that's where I say tracking versus uh, trailing. And to be honest with you, apart from the high level competition where the dog's got to literally have his nose in the dirt, so to speak, otherwise you miss the points. I don't even see the application around that. I think that's a bit of a misnomer that dogs need to be like that. I'm more from the Jeff Sledder school and, you know, he's a great operational trainer. I don't know if you guys 
you haven't had Jeff on the show, have you? No, or, I haven't. You no. know? Okay. So if you're talking about real world tracking, I think he's probably the, the best guy in the world, written several books. The Straightest Path is a great book from about 10 years ago from Jeff. I don't know the guy, but his stuff is great. I actually have heard him speak at a couple of conferences and stuff like that, but I've never discussed anything with him personally. But I've read his books and I, I think his mindset is good. Anyway, the point we're saying is that the reason why I didn't go into the sport was that I felt that I wanted to have the flexibility and the adaptability. If I can give you sort of a, a bit of a, a way of the way that we think about it now, Glenn, I don't know if you remember many years ago, you and I had a discussion and you were a bit critical of what you, you referred to as pattern training. Okay. You felt like some of the dogs were being trained just in a pattern and you felt like you were negative on that. It was a long, long time ago. It was probably 25 years ago or something, maybe more. Anyway, I never forgot that discussion, and I've always been mindful of making sure that dogs I trained aren't simply pattern-trained automatons, and I'm not really impressed by dogs that have learnt a really structured, consistent pattern. So although I admire how precise they are, and this is why I didn't like Ivan's early stuff, although I'm a fan of him these days, without a doubt, but back in the day, Ivan, um, you know, when he first came to Australia and stuff like that, and, um, you know, he, he had a very pattern-orientated training and, and he was very much about build the pattern. The dog almost operated on autopilot, and I felt like that wasn't great. And we, we've tried to move away from that. So we, we have adaptive learning. We follow where our dogs, we actually, Pat, we would actually, for example, not allow the dog to be able to do the same thing twice. We would actually, instead of recall the dog, but we would be standing up against a wall so the dog can't come to the normal position where it would normally come into the heel, okay, what we call the hip position. And we teach the dog how to adapt to the situation and get the gist of what we mean, which would be terrible for competition, but great in the sort of the real world, okay? Mm -hmm. And we train a range of other techniques and tactics in training the dog, which I think are actually more applicable even just for general real world training for, you know, just general obedience for a domestic market and for almost any application outside of sport. So we've got the freedom to do that. And the one thing I do like about sport, which you guys have talked about, I've heard you mention this on the podcast, is that it definitely does get people in and get them focused. And for that reason, I think it's great. I think there are lots of great things about the sport, the timing the guys use, the technique, the attention to detail, all really critical elements. And for that, I absolutely love it. And those are those things that you can borrow from the sport as such. But all I'm saying is that I think it's a little bit of a double-edged sword and we need to be a bit mindful of that. We teach, for example, instead of maintaining really strong focus, we teach a touch index, okay? So the dog is just keeping a really light touch on the leg. So that way you can the dog can work in low light, in, in darkness and stuff. Your dog doesn't need to see us. We don't need to see the dog because we can feel that touch on the leg. It allows the dog to be using visual index back on the handle when it needs to, but not be dependent on that visual index all the time. So we've got a sort of a two systems working there. There's still the visual index is part of it, but you've also got that touch index and uh, that contact healing sort of thing, which again, in a competition is generally penalised, you know, if the dog is touching the person, they actually potentially lose points in many different competitions. Yeah, but anyway, it, it, on the all I'm saying is that that's just been my my mindset. Yeah. I like an adaptive dog that understands all the rules but has enough experience in the technical stages of learning where you've got 
as you move through the initial things and you, you build through fluency and generalization, you eventually reach an adaptive stage where the dog gets the gist of what you want, not in a pattern, but it really sort of understands, I know what you mean here and I'll give you what you mean. It's a sort of a higher cognitive level where the dog sort of gets the gist of, of what's going on as opposed to not following some sort of rigid pattern which you have in, in a sport thing. Yeah. There is also, I'll also mention in PSA, the, the biggest criticism that people have said, which I think is absolutely fantastic and it goes consistent with what we used to do, Glenn, with Harley. You remember the demos we used to do with Harley and your dogs? We did it for a current affair, for example, mm. where we would push kids in front of the dog, you know, during a protection routine. <laughs> true, Glenn, yes. Yeah, yeah very okay. true. Glenn doesn't want to admit this because he's thinking, oh, my God, now we're really going, he'll probably edit this bit out. No, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, yeah, we would uh, literally try to, and when a current affair came on, they said, look, you've changed my mind. It seems like that dog really does understand who the threat is and who isn't. And even if you wanted to, you couldn't get the dog to bite the wrong person. You know, the dog totally understands and keeps its mind on the job. And, you know, the scenarios, Glenn, we never really had a formal set scenario, did we, when we were doing it? We just, whatever was around at the time, we would just sort of do it. So well, it's just my background and my way of thinking about it. Let me just interject there for a second, just so we can connect a few dots here. When you were talking earlier on and you mentioned that I came to you about, well, I was being critical about us following too rigid a pattern at the time. I often refer to on the show and I remind people that a lot of my early learning was that we had a good collective of people around that we were trying to immersify ourselves with whatever we could bring back. And that's what you did encourage people to do in those early days is say, you know, like if you find good information, bring it back and let's, you know, let's adapt it into what we're doing. But I did feel at one stage we did start to orientate too much on a fixed pattern mindset all the time. Whereas at one stage, I remember you went overseas, you were training with Tom Rose at one stage, and then you were coming back and you were talking about, you know, the specifics of randomization and how important that is to involve and evolve your training mindset. And that's why I said to you when we were having that that original chat, I said, you, you know, like you were talking about at one stage, but we sort of dumped it and we went back to our old pattern. You were right. It was a fairly confronting talk. Like it, it sort of shook things up, but we needed to do that. That's what we needed to do is shake things up so we could learn from, you know, the best of what we knew at the time and what we were seeing. Because, I mean, mate, I still remember those very old days when we were watching VHS tapes and, you know, you, me and Greg and Dom and Dave Schmicky and all those people, we'd all be around at your place watching and, you know, some of the debates would get pretty heavy at, at times. Like there was some raised voices and some, you know, banging hands on tables about, whose way was right. But the good thing was, is that even though there were a lot of powerful egos in that room at the time, the good thing was justice prevailed because we really did go down the track of developing a better mindset and a better training strategy based on what we knew to be true. Because further back, even further on the story, you mentioned that there were times where we didn't finish till two o'clock in the morning, you know, and all had to be up at seven to start work again. I mean, those were the days where we would say, this is bullshit. I don't agree. And we'd all say, okay, well, let's get the dogs out and test the theory. And that's what I loved about it because it was like a lab, you know, like we were testing everything that the left said it wouldn't work and the right said it would. We'd say, okay, well, let's test it. Let's put it in a real world scenario. Let's pull the dogs out and see if it will. And there were some times we'd go, oh, they're right. It doesn't work. Scrap that. We've just tested it on 15 dogs and we've had, you know, 14 dogs that have failed miserably on it or 
we would have all the dogs run through what the mindset was at that time. And we'd say, absolutely brilliant. You know, we're going to adapt that into our new training model. That was really important that we did develop that mindset of randomizing and also adding to our collective and understanding that just because we're insular and we were doing really well at the time, it didn't mean that we couldn't add more to what we were doing and learn from other influences such as sports and so forth. Like if they had better knowledge or, you know, to improve a grip or to improve a shaping strategy between obedience and bite work, we were invested in looking at those. And I'm really proud of those days and having a a group that was so distanced from everybody else. Like we didn't have a border that we could just cross over and, and go into a different country where they were steeped in 150 years of building dog work. We had a small group of Australian guys and girls, you know, we had some great girls there as well, like Kylie and others who were with us. But that was significant in my upbringing. And, and that's why I've often referred to those, the good old days, I guess you call them, because they were a long time ago. But it still was like a foundation where we really got to dabble and experiment with things that nobody knew about. And that's how we sort of got to where we are to a large degree. Pat and I have talked about influences from different things like, you know, why we're heavily involved and invested in PSA and certainly the different teachings that we've learned from you and NDTF and et cetera, et cetera. It's been a great hub and spoke sort of model of how it's all intricately connected to each other. I agree with all of that. A comment or a quote that I quoted years ago that I often think is we need to rely on rational thought and hard evidence rather than belief systems or dogma. You know, that's consistent with what you just said. There's absolutely no doubt about it. But, um, it was an experimental time. And to be honest, Glenn, down here, we are actually still very much like that. Like if you ask me now where sort of my passion and stuff like that, research and development, developing further technologies, better ways of doing things, getting deeper into things. And the people who work around me, they'll tell you it's still like um, I'm a quoting machine. I can, uh, you know, quote from so many different sources and, you um, you know, I read a book about every two weeks and pretty consistently. So, you know, I'm reading 20 plus books a year and have been for a long time. And, you know, I still listen to lots of podcasts and things like that. I mean, it's really, I'm still really immersed into it. You know, I'm still spending you know, for 50, 60 hours a week involved in the process, either training people, you know, running courses and stuff. Like last night, I was in it, running an international group there overseas and um, it's a government group, you know, like a police Mm. group that um, con- that we're contracted to train. They'd, they'd be here in Australia except for COVID as such. So, yeah, there, there's no doubt. It's, like we did you know, in UAE. And, and, exactly. Mm. And that is one of the things with things like PSA. That's why I think that for people, it, it does get people interested. You've got to have some sort of focus group. If, you, if you're not connected to a group with some sort of mission, some sort of like-minded mission, it's going to be really hard. And PSA and other sports, they do that really well. They bring people together. So I think that's that's the great side of it. I didn't mean to be critical of the thing. I'm just saying that I think that there are problems with the association between the sport and the real world. And if you're into the sport, that's bloody great, okay, as long as you understand that it has limited in the real world. But if you don't care about how limited it is in the real world, well, then who cares? I just wanted to add there, and I think it's a very important thing that I've certainly learned more so recently, and again, attributed to working with and knowing Pat for so long. One of the important things is not getting stuck in an echo chamber where Mm. you're just recycling your own belief system all the time. Like You can be critical of things that are happening on the outside, but you still have to understand that 
in order to improve and understand that there are things that are evolving outside that will still be an asset to your growth and your modeling systems. So if you can look at that and take the best of it and actually, again, analyze it, pull it apart and think there is a possibility. Mate, I've had times where I distinctly haven't liked somebody that's involved in a system. I just don't like them as a personality, but their work is sometimes so flawless that you have to put aside your personal dislike or your personal belief system sometimes. And you have to look at it and say, even though this person is a bit of a jerk, their work is in large formats flawless. Like I couldn't not take it and still credit them with it. Even though that hurts your soul sometimes, there are still been times where I've looked at things and thought I would be a fool not to adapt that into my system. I really feel that that's been a good evolution for me as a in my growth and performance just as a human being, not as a dog trainer, just as a human being is to not just in dog training, but in general things, business, life, whatever, is just to try and stay out of your own echo chamber mindset. Absolutely. It's a bit of a Bruce Lee philosophy, isn't it? You know, absorb what is useful and have an eclectic sort of mindset. We're very much like that, as are you guys and others. You know, I often hear you guys, you know, you're talking about bringing Bart into the equation and stuff like that. Just while we're on that, and again, steer me in the direction you want to go, but just thought it'd be interesting to have a little bit of a discussion on the systems that people have, you know, like Bart's Nipopo and those types of things as to where they sort of sit. So my philosophy is a little bit different to most other people. I think of dog training in a somewhat different context to what most people might. I think if you are a, for example, behavior consultant dealing with the sort of higher order classes of behavior, fear, anxiety, separation related problems, dominance, and you know, those, those sort of more complex issues. So when I'm saying a consultant, I'm not talking about just, you know, little domestic problems around the house, you know, my dog's jumping up on me or something like that, you know, talking about things that are driven by sort of psychological states. In those instances, I think that we have to think more like clinical psychologists and we have to be sort of more educated like clinical psychologists. Not exactly the same, and there's more to it than that. Okay, I don't want to get too one-dimensional. And I think if you're more involved in the uh, mechanical side of dog training, so for like obedience and PSA or uh, search and detection applications and assistance dogs and things like that, then you want to think a little bit more of it in an engineering sort of context. Originally for want of a better term, mentors with regards to that was Bob Bailey. And, um, you know, Bob uses the term biological systems engineer is what they called themselves. So when the Braylands and that were training their animals and the Braylands, for those that don't know, Keller and Marion Brayland did their PhD with Skinner before World War II in the 1930s and worked extensively with Skinner in military roles during World War II, developing pigeons to guide missiles and all sorts of weird and wacky things. They were never deployed, Pat, but the, the, yeah. the principle was there, yeah. right? And then uh, Bob came in and Bob was originally a trainer for the US military Navy and he ran their first uh, marine mammal training. So using dolphins as, you know, training dolphins for the Navy and stuff. And then he paired up with the Braylands and then he later married after Keller died in um, about 63, I think, Keller died. And then maybe several years later, they got married. Those guys had an engineering sort of mindset around the way that they were training. And I think that's a, so instead of having a system, you know, which whichever system you want to call it, I think that the future of dog training is in us embracing the fact that we are another profession like clinical psychology, like engineering, like electronics, like 
if you want to go there, medicine or anything like that, and that we should consider dog training or animal training if you want to broaden it out, but we'll just focus on dog training as a proper profession where people need a proper education, which means all the core knowledge, the psychology, the learning theory, all of those components. They need to have a decent understanding about biology and anatomy of dogs and health and welfare, like you would in any profession. You know, If you're an engineer, you understand all the component parts. And you don't hear engineers going out and saying, I'm a Nepopo engineer, or I'm a clicker engineer, or I'm a marker engineer or anything. They're engineers. Now, there are different areas of engineering, civil engineering and mechanical engineering, That so that you might equate those across to, I'm a search and detection trainer versus I'm a assistance dog trainer, for example. They would be the different areas of engineering. But where I've dedicated myself is to building the resources, so the training manuals, the presentations, and spending the time and effort to convert dog training into a more proper profession. And whether you want to look at it using an apprenticeship model or whether you want to look at it as a more professional model like clinical psychology or engineering, as an example, I think that that's the future direction that we want to go. If we're going to be taken seriously by other professions to begin with, and if we are going to develop a proper education. And I remember in it was actually in the Dave Croyer podcast of yours, where both of you guys had various comments around exactly that. Pat, I think you were saying, you know, if you understand that learning theory, if you have that strong foundation, uh, you can solve almost any problems. You and Dave were sort of chatting about that. And I was Mm -hmm. going, yeah, exactly. And I'm a big believer in that, you know, that the more learned you are about the learning theory, the psychology of behavior and all the related elements, the better trainer you're going to be. And that's where we need to be pushing people. And certainly when you go and do a bit of a systems setup, like, and I mean, Bart is a very learned guy, as is Mike Ellis, as is Jerry Bradshaw. These are all very smart guys, as is Ivan, you know, since we're talking about these international people. But there's plenty of people in Australia who are like that as well. You know, you guys, and there are many of the guys and many of the guys that I work with, you know, very learned guys. And, you know, we just need to start thinking about it more that we're in a proper profession. We need to get a proper education. As you guys pointed out numerous times on the podcast, and Glenn, this is an area where you talk about it's a journey. It takes a long time to learn. You know, I'm not necessarily saying it takes 20 years, although I think if you just go ad hoc, it probably does take 20 years. But if you mentor with somebody, you know, I'm sure, Pat, you would agree that the time you've spent with Bart has accelerated your learning uh, exponentially. There's just no doubt about that. I think to that point, mate, I think one of the issues we have in dog training is for lack of professional institutions of education, we have branded techniques that are actually all very similar. So I did a semester at school in the States. I went to Yale for a semester and Yale is, it's a competitor to Harvard. And in the same way that you get two groups, like of any people, you can split them along any arbitrary line that you like. They then are competitors to each other and they become tribal and they turn at each other. And so Yale and Harvard have, it's a race to the bottom. Who's got the second worst football team? Because they both suck so bad at it, in spite of the fact that Yale invented the game. That's not how and why they recruit people to play. So I think we have the same. When you graduate from one of those schools, you put on your wall, no matter what degree you get, say you become an architect, even though that's a secondary thing in the States, it's different, but it goes on your wall. You're a psychologist and it goes on your wall and there it is written in Latin that you went to Yale and you became a psychologist. 
And there's people who will go to Harvard and do the same and get the exact same fucking degree. And on their wall, there's a different diploma that says the same qualification, but has a different logo on it because it came from a different school. Both super highly respected schools. And then you can go to, you can go to back to the original, you can go to Oxford and get the same degree and you'll get a different diploma, a different piece of paper that goes on your wall. And we can all look at that and agree that those are psychs or whatever qualification they similarly got at those institutions, but they got them in slightly different places and they're going to have a slightly different viewpoint on how things went because of the person that educated them. And I think that we need to get to that point within dog training and not look at the opposite as wrong or just look at the title that you use. So for example, I was for a long time known as a Nipopo guy and the inference is that you train in a particular way and you must train the same as Bart. And I don't think that's true at all. I think what it says is you were trained by Bart in the same way that you can, like I'm a dog trainer and I have my my piece of paper that says that I'm a dog trainer, but it's got Bart's name on it. And Nipopo is just the word that he uses, right? But then I haven't finished Ivan's course because I can't get to the States, but I've done his as well. And so I can have a TWC one as well, right? I can get the same piece of paper from the same place. And having done both courses, I can tell you they're like more than 90% the same. And so I think I agree with you totally that we need to sort of professionalize the industry. But I think that noting that we don't have those big, long established education centers whereby people can look at and go, you have the same thing. You have become a very highly skilled, competent dog trainer and you were guided by a particular person. And that's why you have their name preceding yours rather than just looking at it and go, Hey, you're a really high school dog trainer. And that's the school that you went to. Right. Mm. And I think that would help us having that mindset throughout the industry would help us quite a lot. So Boyd, you basically started NDTF. It was your project right from the start, your passion. Glenn, did you say you did the second course, not second the course. first one? Yep. So what was the driving catalyst for that, Boyd? Because like I imagine, as we've just sort of discussed, that professionalization of our industry and that development of like an industry standard course is obviously really close to your heart. Tell us about starting the NDTF, what that looked like and what you see in the future for dog trainers of that kind. Well, it originally started before the NDTF even existed, where I realized that I needed to educate my trainers, of which Glenn was one, although the course was set up a little bit before that, back in the very early 90s. So I started, I realized in the late 80s that we needed to have some sort of professional development. In 89, I went to Europe and to the States. And then again, in 91, I think it was, as Glenn or one of you guys pointed out before, Tom Rose, um, Mm. I I went to his and quite a West Virginian canine college, which is where Gary Jackson went. I didn't do their full courses, but because I told them I was a professional trainer, I wanted to come. They welcomed me with open arms, spent some time there. Traveled with some other trainers some of the time and was with myself. It was great to be able to get access to a lot of places that uh, it was quite surprising that uh, they would let me in and everybody welcomed me with open arms. Training with Stuart Hilliard, for example, did a lot with Stuart back in the day. From that, I was sort of looking at how other people were doing it, how they were doing it in Europe and particularly how they were doing it in America at a few professional colleges, like you said, the Tom Rose School for Dog Trainers and sort of capturing the ideas. And then I brought that back to Australia in the very early 90s, around 91, 92, or whenever it was. I sort of set the course up. The NDTF didn't exist at that stage, so it was just an in-house training program for our training within our training organisation. 
We did that for a couple of years and then the NDTF got set up and then we decided, well, instead of just doing it as an in-house, albeit that it was a professional course, you know, we were training all sorts of things, you know, there was tracking involved, a lot of protection work involved in those days, socialisation, pup development was actually probably a broader course than the modern NDTF course is as far as subject matter. But then we thought, well, yeah, let's market it to a more generalised market. Not so much that we did that. The industry pressure on us was to be able to provide training to a broader market. So that's the direction that we head. And then in the mid yeah, in the mid 90s, we set the course up or early 90s. I, I can't remember when it first ran as an NDTF course. And then it ran for about another, I don't know, eight years or so. And then in the early 2000s, I think around 2003, it became nationally recognised and sort of the, the rest is history. So that's the snapshot of it. Do you want me to go into any more detail in any particular areas of that? Or? No, I think it's I think it's really interesting because we get quite a lot of feedback. You know, most of our audience is America or, or North America anyway. And we get quite a lot of feedback about people can be quite jealous that there is a nationally accredited course in Australia, that it's a real qualification. And while it's not a requirement to enter the industry, it's good to have a nationally accredited thing and a standard that can be set. One of the things that I think is interesting though, is, you know, as I travel around and see different things is what we don't have in Australia is like a long form, six months, hands-on kind of course, right? Because as we've discussed, like the, the NDTF is kind of a tapas now. That's kind of what it's become of mm. like, here is a little taste and it's a, a, an awesome start point. Like for people who are, I'm interested in becoming a dog trainer. This is a great way to enter the industry. Do you think there's place and scope and capability in Australia for us to develop a like a six month long full-time hands-on course? And do you think that we'd benefit from that? Is that something in your vision? Because I know education is so yeah, important yeah, to you. Exactly. It, it is my sort of area. There's no doubt. It's a complicated question and I don't think we're going to be able to get into it in depth. Maybe we can have another session in the future where we can focus on around the whole education thing and we can sort of set that up. But just to give you some examples. So for the last X number of years, I've been bringing international groups into Australia English as a second language. So they do an English language component, but they spend two years full time here okay, okay, and get a qualification. Now they're government people. So their government is sending them there and they work for an organization within the government. They might be a police agency or some other type of agency of some description. And they said, we're going to send eight people to you and they're going to come and live in Australia for two years. They're going to learn some English language. So the first six months is heavily around the English language component. And then they do full-time. So they live here and it's a full-time sort of program. So those types of programs do already exist in some sort of way of doing it. And so I definitely think that's the way it should go in line with previous discussions that around the fact that we've got to change the industry dynamic into a, whether it's an apprenticeship model or whether it's into a professional model, like we talked about engineering or, Mm -hmm. you know, clinical psychology or whatever, I do think. As to whether that's six months, it's probably beyond the scope of the discussion here. I don't think that six months is enough, but I do understand that there are logistics considerations around how you can do it. And I also think that I've been working with programs to give people further education. So it's really designed that you've done the NDTF course, so you have that foundation. I do think that the NDTF course is good from the main point of view is it introduces people to the industry and it gives them a good foundation in learning theory. They learn about operant conditioning, about Pavlovian conditioning, about schedules of reinforcement and all that sort of 
underpinning background knowledge that you can use as a base. So I think that's really where the strength of that is. And it gives you a foundation to work on. I've been saying for decades that I think all dog training is about 70% generic. So if you've trained a dog in high level obedience, and then you move over to say search and rescue or scent detection or assistance dogs, you're already 70% prepared because we're all using reinforcement, your timing, your tools, and you know all your learning theory stuff. It's all pretty well common, not a hundred percent. That's why I'm saying it's 70% and it sort of carries over. So the NDTF course was sort of designed to give you the foundation in that 70%. So then you can go sort of and become more specialised in the areas that you're interested in. So that's the way it goes. But yes is the short answer to the question. <laughs> I, I think that there is definitely scope and I think it's got to be the way that we go. We can't, as a global industry, we can't go forever with just being some sort of ad hoc everybody's learning different stuff, everybody's focusing on different stuff. I mean, that's great to create a great mix, but it's no way to have an industry. Glenn, if you go overseas to America, a mate of mine, Woody, went over there, he's an electrician like you, and he had no problems getting a job as an electrician in several countries around the world. They recognised his qualification as a an electrician and he pretty much could work. He worked in Europe and he worked throughout the States. He might have had to do some sort of minor conversion or something because of you know a few different regulations and stuff. I'm not exactly sure, but fundamentally, it's a formal qualification as it is with engineering, as it is with clinical psychology, as it is in medicine, et cetera, et cetera, okay? So it'd be nice to have that. And Pat, you hit the nail on the head where you say the other countries like the idea that there is some sort of regulation and some sort of standardised course. But I do think that we want to go to a higher level, especially for the people who really do want to do it at a professional level. And especially if that level includes professional consultancy dealing with those higher order classes of behaviour. You know, we're talking about, you know, fear, anxiety, aggression problems, dominance, separation related problems, chronic stress, and many other aspects that are deeper and more technical. Mm. So if if your main job is just teaching at a dog obedience club, then arguably you don't need to have that level of experience or qualification. But as soon as you move into the more technical stuff, it's a different game. I think the big fear, certainly I have this fear, is that any sort of legislation around the requirements uh, to be a dog trainer, the education requirements, I'm really scared of what that would look like because of the influence that we're likely to get on the methods. And I think if and when it ever is legislated somewhere around the world that this is the qualification you've got to have – I'm scared of the teachings that would be taught on that qualification. Is that something that concerns you? You know, I, and I mean, I'm talking influence of people who would rule out the use of tools and pressure and basically want to remove two of the quadrants completely from the education piece. Yeah, that's a great question, Pat. And what a massive can of worms that is to have that discussion. So I've probably got about five little component parts. I'll quickly give you the snapshot. So firstly, I'm 100% with you that's where I'd like to start, is that the danger about legislating is that it could create that problem and likely would, okay? I totally admit. So for that reason, so the second point I'll say in line with that is that there is a difference between having a qualification and being legislated that you need that qualification. So there can be sort of industry pressure that this is the standard qualification that you should have and it becomes sort of the industry standard without it being legislated. And I think we could go down that path Maybe I'm a bit optimistic, a bit biased here, potentially, but I think that that would be a direction that we could go where we could all get online with saying, okay, this is a great 
sort of formalized structured education and then um, where you go from there is up to you. But there's no doubt that that would be the case. On an, a very optimistic perspective, and you'll probably think I'm a bit of a dreamer when I say this because even I would agree that I'm stretching things, but I would like to think that if we did get a more formalized, structured legislated even, education, then that would be the guider of this protocols and procedures. So it becomes the industry standard. Mm -hmm. And then we can say, well, who are you to say what sort of tools? We are the expert. So I'll, I'll give you a quick story on that one time. There was a the LRD down here, Licensing and Regulation Division, it's a section of the police that looks after the security industry and other areas of shooting licenses and all of that type of stuff. Okay, you guys have SLED, I think, up there, yeah. which is the equivalent in yeah. Sydney, right? And, and it's part of the police, right? It's the Department of the Police. Now, they wanted to get some consultancy around uh, legislation for letting people be security dog handlers and for other aspects within the security industry. For example, they went to Victoria Police Dog Squad, I believe. They, this is what the story they told me at the time. And they said, can we get you to sort of consult with us? And they said, well, no, we, we don't have the resources. It's not really our gig, you know, who should you go to? And they said, you know, go and see Boyd because he trains us and stuff like that. And then they said things like, well, can you legislate over that and, you know, be involved. And they said, well, no, because Boyd's training out people and training us. So how can we be saying Boyd, you should do this when we're actually using you as a consultant to train us, if mm -hmm. you understand that, that yep. dynamic. So I think that if we manage it carefully, having more formalised qualifications gives the industry the opportunity to say that various techniques, protocols, tools, et cetera, are actually appropriate if used properly. And if those people are properly educated in the use of those, then your concerns about the application of those things, and obviously just to put some concrete around this, we're talking about things like e-collars and or prong collars mm -hmm. and or generalised training protocols and or protection training as a whole, you know, what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do, et cetera. You can value add to that, guys, if there's other areas that as a broad grasp, that's yep. what we're sort of talking about. And the course would be a very balanced. So the idea would be that it would be, when I'm saying the course, the education process has to be a very generalised thing. It's not teaching a system of training. It's teaching an education because obviously, you know, like I said, they don't have systems in engineering or they don't have systems in clinical psychology. You know, it's just a broad way. But that is optimistic. I agree. And I do agree to your point, Pat, very much that, there is an absolute danger that if it goes into a sort of legislative thing, that they could use that against people and say, right, you've got to do this, 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 and this. And that's the beginning of the end. And that's when the euthanasia is going to go through the roof and stuff. Because if we don't have those tools, we can't control the dogs. And then it becomes a nightmare. I don't yeah. have to tell you. I mean, you've had numerous podcasts about that. That's probably an interesting place to take it, mate, because we don't talk to many people who've been at it for 40 years and at the level that you have been at that can tell us about the progression that you've seen over time and the influence of different training styles and their popularity. So like I imagine when you started out in dogs, it would have been pretty compulsion based, right? I'd for love sure. to hear mm -hmm. your journey as to, did you ever have a period where you thought, you know, you saw some, a dog that was trained more flashy, more you know, reinforcement based and thought, I'm throwing out the old, I'm going totally. I guess what I'm asking is, did at any stage, did you overcorrect? I know that you refer to yourself as a balanced trainer and you embrace that word and, and certainly probably now fit into 
like most of us, that you, you yes. know, highly reinforcement yeah. based. But yeah, was there ever a point where you said along the journey, like, oh no, I'm throwing out the baby with the bathwater and then thought, oh no, I've gone too far? I've heard you say that about yourself, Pat. I know that you pretty much originally started as a, a very much rewarder, almost a, you mm-hmm. know, you might have called yourself a positive only trainer yep. or whatever. And then you sort of came back from the, the depths there. So to speak. <laughs> there was a few other examples I could have used there, but I, I won't go there. Well, man, um, I just wasn't, so, I wasn't no, as good I, as I, I wanted to be. That I- I wasn't I as good as I wanted to be. I was. I realised yeah. I was training dogs with totally, my hand behind totally. my back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Mike Ellis says exactly the same thing. You know, like he started with compulsion only. Then he he saw this force free thing and went, "Wow, this is fantastic." Then he realised, "Okay, this doesn't work." Okay, mm-hmm. and he lands in that. As you said, I think pretty much all of us that we're talking about are very balanced in our perspective. And, and just to be clear here, I'm defining balance as 85 to 95% reward-based training, only using compulsion when necessary, if necessary. Certain aspects don't involve any compulsion because they simply don't need to. Yeah. Others do more. It depends on the dog. It depends on the stage of learning of the dog. It depends on the task that we're teaching. You know, that's what I mean. And I'll just broaden the balance perspective even more. I mean psychologically balanced as well. So mm-hmm. clear-headed, good thinking, how we treat dogs, how we our relationships with dogs and what we call the imprinting of ideas, how we want the dog to see the world and see us in the world and everything like that. And all of these people that we're talking about, whether it be Bart or Ivan or the people we're talking about, all these people in Australia, I think the absolutely overwhelming percentage of them are balanced trainers. And I also agree, and I've been promoting this as well with both, and I've heard Bart and Ivan, for example, directly talking about this. Ivan talks about it on one of his podcasts where he's saying that people in the industry lie. They pretend that they're force-free. And I've heard Bart say this as well. It's, he's on record, right? It's on. I don't know which video it was that I watched of him one time, but he literally said they're just lying. They're, they're saying they're force-free. It's a marketing tool or this or that or the other thing. So I think that the obviously I have direct input with a lot of students. You do too, Glenn, but I have more because I'm involved with different states and, you know, on the scale of things, I present to more students than you do. But some of them come in with a little bit of a force-free, positive-only mindset, but it's not that hard to change their mind to just a sort of a balanced and let's be reasonable. And once they realize that balance means fundamentally reward-based and only using corrective protocols and consistent with the, the science, the real science and stuff like that. That's the point is it's not about me trying to force change in their mind. It's just presenting something that they've never seen before. Because a lot of people argue from the armchair these days, and we've all been recipients of that, where people are sitting behind their computer and they're arguing about things that they've seen or heard on the internet. But when they actually come and view it in real life, it presents itself as a different position than what they currently knew. So there have been times where people have come down and they've sat very silently through the class for about halfway through, and then they may pull me aside and and have a conversation with me and said the talk that you just gave there was really eloquent. Like you really explained things well and you gave good real world examples, both theoretically and environmentally on why and how this could work. And I take that as a huge compliment. And I think that anybody that's involved in the industry, certainly all three of us, we're capable of doing that with people that come to us for education is to say to them, here is one way of doing it. Here is another way of doing it. And here is possibly even a third way of doing it. It's really up to you to think about the scenario, the dog and the situation, even the handler that you're with on which one would be most suitable at the time. And I think that really 
sets a great stage for balance training or lemur trainers or whatever you want to call yourself to say, we don't oppose anything as long as it's ethically viable for the handler, the dog and the system that you're working in. And I think I can confidently say this again for the three of us that are speaking now, there's nobody here that aligns themselves with unethical training outcomes for dogs. Like all of us love dogs. We're in the industry because we absolutely adore being in the industry and working with dogs and educating people. So why violate that by doing something diametrically opposed to what we're actually talking about? That's the picture that I try and present to students is I'm not wed to any one way of training. What I'm wed to is outcomes. That's what I want to produce. And that's why I still fall in the systems of a balanced trainer is because simply all I care about is getting that owner and their dog. Fundamentally these days with working with a lot more pet dogs than anything else, the main thing that we want to do is keep that dog in the home. That's what we want to do is have and try to encourage that person to fall in love with their dog all over again. Yeah, I agree. No argument about that. I'm not concerned with who is right. I'm concerned with what is right. Exactly. And as I said before, I'm not just teaching people what to think. I'm teaching them how to think, which is just other ways of saying what you've just said there. Yeah, there's no doubt. Pat, back to your question. I never really overcorrected. I just evolved through the process. And I've always made it my business to train with people. I told you, for example, I did that thing with uh, the Braylon's Bailey's. Yeah. Which I'm yeah. super jealous of, by the way. That's There aren't too many people around that can say they work firsthand with those guys. And I was actually lucky that actually they were there because it's not, it wasn't that long after that that Marion died. You know, I think she died maybe around 2000, something like that. Don't quote me on that, but... Not before 2000, it might have been early 2000s or something like that. It was when they were sort of winding that thing up back in the mid-90s. I don't remember which year it was or whatever. And lots of different people training with different approaches and the like. Another example of that is that I I did a training workshop, whatever you want to call it, with you Mm -hmm. guys are probably familiar with that over in the States. And they're basically e-collar trainers from woe to go, Mm -hmm. right? More or less, their mindset is that even with a pup, you come into a private lesson, they sell you an e-collar, they teach you how to use it in a very basic way, and then you take the e-collar away and you train. That's a bit one-dimensional. I don't want people to take that as a literal interpretation, but fundamentally, that's what they're about. And I thought, well, if I'm going to be critical of that, I really want to see it. So I got to train with the owner and originator of it, so that was even better. It wasn't like a second or third hand, Mm -hmm. and wasn't that great, to be honest with you. I mean, even the sophistication of the training wasn't that great. They were well off the curve, in my opinion. It's pretty sort of lame, and apart from the obvious anti-lemur mindset of it. So uh, that couldn't be possibly considered as the least intrusive, minimally aversive mechanism if you're basically doing everything around e-collars. But look, they do start on young. I'll tell you a quick funny story. He asked for volunteers. When I go to these seminars, I sit front row. I ask lots of questions. I'm really involved. I'm not one of these people who sits up the back and shuts up or anything like that. I'm really heavily involved in those things. I I go there to learn and listen and I've done lots of things. You know, I went and trained with uh, Ken Ramirez, who's a marine mammal trainer. He Mm -hmm. now runs Karen Pryor's Clicker Academy and stuff, but he didn't then. You probably remember that, Glenn. I went with uh, Mm. Julia. You remember? I do. We spent a a week with Ken. And so training from all these different people, because I don't want to be too critical about this, that, or the other thing if I haven't had a bit of first-hand knowledge or at least second-hand knowledge from somebody I know and trust. We are all coming from the basic same position now, I think most of the people. And I actually think that this myth about these people who are really inhumane and really hard, I think they're pretty minimalist. You know, I trained with an American trainer years ago who was a first generation 
Keeler, Bill, you know, William Keeler. Mm-hmm. I think that's the correct pronunciation of his name, but you hear so many different Yeah, variants. some people say it's a, a Cola, it's a, yeah. Cola, yeah. It looks like Cola, but I think it's pronounced Keeler. And, you know, Bill had a fantastic back, you know, he was head trainer for the US military. He was head trainer for Walt Disney Studios. He was the training director at the Orange Empire Kennel Club in California, which was the largest dog obedience club in the world at that time. I mean, he's got a great pedigree, but he was hard. You know, it was old school training, yank and crank. He's the epitome of it, you know. But he didn't have the same dogs that we have today, so reward-based training would have been limited. I've got studies, which I got from Steve Lindsay, for example, original studies and stuff that came out of the US military back in the 1970s and stuff at the time of the Vietnam War and after it, where they were using a lot of deprivation to get the dogs motivated enough to work for food. And they were finding that they couldn't get dogs to be reliable unless they deprived them for three and in some cases even four days of food deprivation. And to make matters worse, once they fed them during training, their deprivation went away and then they had to starve them again for several days and back to the same sort of story. Mm. So, but I don't think there's very many people who are down that. I think, I mean, there's different degrees of balance, but I think almost all of us, you know, you can't imagine Jerry Bradshaw, Mike Ellis, Ivan, Bart, us, whoever, you know, all of these people, my crew, we're all fundamentally on the same page, I think, aren't we? Yeah. yeah. Am, am I naive here or? Mate, you know? I think, and I think the thing is as well, most of the people that would call them, put themselves into the plus R trainer categories do the same. They just limit themselves by the tools that they use. And I think part of the big issue that we have on this, and it seems to come up a lot on the show, but it's something that we've become known for is excluding the people at the margins. Most dog trainers are doing things very similar. And to the point of like you and I are involved in working dogs, military working dogs currently, right? And there is nobody that is using, say, you know, no tools that is accurately creating one of those dogs and putting it into the service. That doesn't exist. And there's people that might represent themselves as saying like, oh, you know, I'm a rewards-based trainer and whatever. And it feels like a lot of that is marketing because they're just afraid of the blowback. Because you know, there's no way to prepare a dog for the street without using some pressure on the dog. And even if you don't want to use the tools, you have to prepare that dog to fight. And the only way he's going to learn to fight is by being in a controlled fight with someone else that's going to put some pressure on him. He's going to learn to counter it and all that kind of stuff. And I think that there's this big middle ground of dog trainers that we think of it as two camps. Yeah, for the most part, we, we think of it as two camps. There's positive only people and there's balanced trainers. But I personally think there's really three camps. I think that there's extremist force-free people that don't understand dog training. Then the other margin, there's the hardcore yank and crank people that also don't really understand what can be done in dog training. And then the rest of us are all in the middle and some of us use tools and some of us don't. And what ends up happening is the people that are like – in the middle, but want to use tools. We argue with the people on that other margin that can't hear us anyway. Right. Mm. And when we, the force free people or the people who are like us, but are in the middle and don't use tools, argue about the bad use of tools. They're not talking to us. They're talking to the people on the other side of the margin on our side of the margin that also don't hear them. So it's kind of like this mute argument that just goes around and around. And we're having we're creating conflict where there just doesn't need to be any. And like, I personally feel that just showing your work, show us like, Hey, this is how we do it. This is how we educate. And this is it. I recently put a video up on how I use a prong collar and why not so much how, like, cause I didn't want, you know, in the 10 minute YouTube video, I can't explain how to use a prong collar, but I can show why I use it and demonstrate how I use it. And I had people that were really staunchly anti prong collar contact me and say, 
oh, I'm no longer anti-prong collar. I probably won't use one myself, but I wasn't aware people were using them that way because when I look online, all I see is people yanking and cranking. And they're like, oh, Pat, you're one of us. You're, you're in our crew. I'm like, hey, I'm representative of the mean. I'm not even that good, <laughs> right? I'm, you just see the extremes and I'm just normal. That's how most balance trainers are using those tools. For the most part, that's how everybody's just like, a bit of guiding pressure, help the dog understand the behavior. Yeah, it's frustrating. It's frustrating because we argue around in circles, but I think for the most part, we agree on almost everything we do. The other part that is frustrating to that, and which I just want to add to, which I talked about on a couple of episodes earlier, is that this conversation recycles every five years. Yeah. Like Because the new people that are coming up in the industry who are probably fresh out of high school or fresh out of college or whatever, they come along in the industry, they start searching dog trainers, then they, they understand, well, I can have an opinion on this. And then yeah. they start the fight up all over again. We you know, like we've kind of, everyone's got like a reasonable understanding with each other and the industry sort of settles. And here comes the new five-year insert of the new freshmen that come into the industry who want to spark up the conversation all over again. A few bombs will get dropped from each side and then other people say, yeah, is that what you're thinking? It's still there, is it? Well, fuck you. Here comes some um, diversity from my side. And Mm. then you think, well, I'm insulted by that. And we haven't talked about that before. So here's a couple of truths from my side. And that sort of sparks it up all over again. And then you'll have people that rally to this side and rally to that side. And everybody's sort of looking to cluster under the umbrella of a certain champion in the field so they can say, yeah, I want to be involved in this fight. I want this to kick up, which is really disappointing because it doesn't need to. I think we have to try and break that cycle. And even with the new people that are coming on board is, is not encourage them to start up. Not, it's not to encourage, not encourage people to critically think or, you know, to get involved or to analyze what's happening, but not so much to get involved in the empty conversations and the convoluted conversations that really have no meaningful outcomes to them anymore, other than just insulting people and kicking the top off an ant's nest that doesn't need to be kicked off. Yeah, you're dead right, though. We, like, we found a level, and then, yeah. you know, what's happened in the last couple of months is the imminent e-collar ban in the UK, as well as the AVSAB position statement on any compulsion in training, on mm. anything other than completely force-free training. And that's, you know, reignites a bunch of issues. And and I think as balance trainers, we sometimes, we can be labelled as the protagonists in this because we have to react. We're the ones that are having our tools taken away from us. So it's like, oh, I wish you guys had calmed down. Sometimes it gets so it's like, yeah, but we're the ones that are being attacked. We're the reactionary element here. Mm. The thing is, people don't realise that it's not just about having the tools taken away, it's about the welfare of the dog. Because once the tools are taken away, then we lose the ability to control the dogs. And I sometimes think that there is, you know, without going down the conspiracy theory hole here, I remember being in the office of the where they had two inspectors and we were talking about something. This is going back about 20 years ago. And I brought up this discussion here, you know, because they were selling check chains, correction chains. I said, look, the thing that makes this interesting is that it seems that the strategy you're talking about here is going to make it more difficult to own dogs and stuff like that. The chief inspector there, the, the head of their inspector department said to me, make no mistake about it, the end of the day would love it if no people had any dogs we don't want zoos we don't want circuses we don't want horse racing we don't want pet dogs animals should live in the wild at the end of the day it's that sort of peter mindset so that's at the extreme end and that that inspector told me that in confidence sitting in a room he goes this is the way this organization thinks at its head you know and we're just manifesting that sort of belief system but a, a couple of things i'll also say is that firstly pat and again certain people i talk to 
within the industry, guys that I work closely with like Harley and Shane and Mick and, you know, the girls that I work with and as part of my crew and team down here, they often say that I'm a little bit out of touch from the point of view that I don't think there's very many, that many people at the extreme. So if we talk about the extreme Yank and Crankers, I'm not saying they don't exist, but they're very few and far between when you get to it. And to be honest with them, unfortunately, a lot of them might be agency-based people. So they're not outside the agency. So sometimes they can be a little bit that way. Mm -hmm. And that's a remnant of the past, perhaps, and they need to evolve a little bit. But I don't think there's that many of them these days. And people seem to be, you know, Dave from New South Wales, mate, with the cops, I know he's out now. You know, he was open to the sort of more balanced training and the guys down here that I work with over the years from Victoria Police and the prisons and stuff like that. I think that the the people are more balanced and there's less real yank and crank than what people imagine there is. It's like this, we've got to have an enemy and going back to what you guys said, that you've got to have an enemy, got to have a common enemy, somebody to fight. So we create this artificial thing that there's this thing. But I think most of the people are much more balanced and I think that the people, there's only a small percentage on the complete other side who really are the so-called totally force-free. And I think that's kind of just in the natural extension of a sort of woke social justice warrior mindset, which only a very small minority of people really sit in that group. Right? Mm. And, and I think most people have a much more balanced approach. They're very vocal they post a lot on social media, so they sound like there's more of them than there is. And again, I could be a little bit naive, but when I'm talking to the NDTF students who are coming from every background and I'm talking to them all the time, you probably don't realise the scale of the number of them that I, I deal with on an ongoing basis. You know, I just don't think that there's those extremes either way. And I also think that the people, you know, one of the biggest advocates of the positive only, the face of positive only for years has been a lady named Pat Miller. And she wrote the book, The Power of Positive Dog Training. It's about 20 years old now. And that was probably the biggest book that pushed that sort of mindset back in the day. You go and do the research for yourself. Have a look at the things that Pat advocates. She wrote the book, The Power of Positive Dog Training, and she advocates a whole range of aversive incentives that could not in your wildest dreams be considered to be positive only. Marine air horns, squirting the dog with a hose, squirting the dog with a fire extinguisher, banging two rubbish bins lids together over the top of the dog's head, quote, unquote. I'm not talking figuratively. These are literally the things that she recommends in writing. I mean, it's not positive only. And that comes back to the point that people are pretending that they're something and maybe it's just marketing. Maybe they just don't understand it, you know. Well, I think and it's like the fear I said, of the I've, backlash. I've heard so many people talk about it. I think Sorry. it's fear of the backlash because there's such a the narrative has been pushed that a dog can be trained to a high level without any form of negative consequences for the dog. And we all know that's impossible. Now, you, you can certainly train a dog to a very high level, no tools, hands off and that sort of stuff, but there has to be negative consequences for the dog. Like dog training is about consequences for action, positive and negative, and for inaction, positive and negative. And the people who are capable of training a dog to a really high level will absolutely, whether they use tools or not, tell you that they use punishment, they use negative reinforcement, they use all kinds of things, but it just might not be via a prong collar or an electric collar. And I think that got kind of lost and that there's a bunch of people that say, because they'd never trained a dog, you don't need any form of negative reinforcement. You don't need any form of punishment to effectively train a dog. And they use false heroes. They put people on a pedestal and say, that person does it. 
And it's like, have you watched any of their training? Because I'm watching it and they are using all of those things. They're just using it without the tools. They're just finding creative solutions and that makes them feel better about it. And I don't necessarily think it's any better for the dog, but that's a subjective thing. We'll never be able to determine that until we can start communicating with dogs and genuinely asking them, how do you feel about this? Would you rather be guided into the right position via a prong collar or would you rather be left to figure it out and stress over it by yourself for 10 minutes. Which one do you want? Until we can ask the dogs that. And different dogs will probably give different answers, right? So until we can ask the dogs, we just have to sort of agree that we're using the full spectrum of motivation. We're using the whole, all four quadrants. And to deny the use of them is foolish. And you've got to accept that sometimes to use a tool is perhaps the minimum okay. Like the people who are against it have to accept that we can do it. And it's at the minimum, it's okay for people to do it with a tool. That's what I've been working for years to try and convey. And I, I don't know Girl, if I'm succeeding or not. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's some, there's yeah. some good knowledge bombs in that. There's just a quick insert that I want to add there is because you've seen it, Boyd, you've seen it, and I've seen it, and, and most of our colleagues have seen it as well. There's a lot of people out there who've got some extremely good intentions. They talk about they want to train their dog with a positive-only mindset and platform. The problem is, is they don't understand what's aversive in the eyes of the dog. And that really much aligns with a big problem that people are having their training system or their training belief or their training methodology, whatever you want to call it, is fraught with adversives, but they just don't understand it and they don't focus on that themselves. However, I know I overused this quote, but it's Esther Schultz statement. It doesn't matter what we think and feel, it matters what the dog thinks and feels, but people sometimes just don't understand that. And they're the biggest spruikers on the internet on all social media platforms, but still they're not taking into consideration the things that they don't align with being adversive or punishing, but the dog very much does. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, that's a big thing that I advocate all the time. I mean, my high-drive working dogs, for example, don't respond very well to positive punishment. But bring me back to that in a second because just a point I want to say back to Pat's point there is that firstly – we should be using punishment in the correct scientific term. You can't punish a dog because punishment means behaviour weakener and reinforcement means behaviour strengthener. And I'm going back to, you know, everybody from Skinner and the like in, in how it was defined. So punishment means a protocol, a consequence, let's say, that weakens the behaviour. And reinforcement is about strengthening it. That's why I use terms like corrections or aversive incentives. But for the sake of it, we can, as long as we get the gist of what we're talking about there. But I think terminology is important. We need to get a little bit better with the way that we use these things. But also, it's all very well to talk about the use of reward-only training, positive-only training and stuff like that. So I say to people when they train with us and if I'm talking to them, forget positive-only, we're going to talk very positive. We want to be very positive trainers, which again is the modern balanced trainer in my opinion, which another way of saying very positive is reward-based. I'm going to base everything around earning rewards. Now, to your point, Glenn, which I completely agree with. If you've got a high drive dog, and I acknowledge that a lot of people don't have, but my dogs don't respond particularly well to positive punishment because they're very strong, resilient dogs, both physically and psychologically, and physical corrections of any description really don't mean that much. You know, I imported a dog from Europe a few years back, a Dutch Shepherd named Blue. This is the last dog on earth you want to meet in a dark alley. And that dog is almost immune to pain on an e-collar. So you can put him on 100 on an e-collar, and if he's in the right drive, 
he doesn't even act as though he's getting the stim, if you know what I mean. So therefore, positive punishment has limitations. But negative punishment, withholding reinforces, you know, timeouts, response cost protocols, et cetera, work brilliantly because he's got such a high drive that the thing that is highly aversive to him is missing out on access to the resource. It's not highly aversive to feel pain, and therefore it doesn't modify his behaviour very well, but it's very stressful, very frustrating, very aversive to miss out. And many of my dogs would be like that. It's not that I don't use positive punishment a lot because I think it's inhumane or whatever. I just don't think it works very well with high drive dogs because they just don't care. And if they did care, they probably couldn't be good working dogs because they'd be too sensitive. Now, I'm not saying that's the collection across the spectrum. I can use an e-collar on a very low level on most of my dogs, and it just acts as a cue, like a salient condition punisher, if you like, to say that's the wrong behavior, that's going to cost you access to your resource. Okay, I'm going to time you out if you do it again, or I'm going to use some sort of response cost. I'm going to restrict your access to the resource. So it'd be the same as just using a verbal delta signal, like just going ah or no or something like that, or a stim on the e-collar. It only has to be quite low because it's telling the dog wrong choice you won't get access, therefore he modifies his behaviour. So I think that's much more about the technology of the tools that we're sort of using. And if people under, once people understand that, they sort of get on board with it. But it takes a while to learn that, which comes back, Pat, to your point again, is that it is a lot about education, which is yeah. where you started in your last rant a few minutes ago there, is yeah. that if we can only educate people about how we're using these tools, why it works, and particularly, the last thing I'll say on this, particularly if you're talking about training a dog where you need it to work under distraction and competing motivations. So for example, a a service dog, like a seeing eye dog or an assistance dog of some description, particularly a police dog, et cetera, you know, these serious working roles where you need to deploy the dog, recall it and control it at a distance, et cetera, et cetera. That's where your reward only, your positive only training is going to fail. It can still be very positive. It just can't be purely positive to use their vernacular, not terminology I would use, but you get the point. And that's where it falls down. And the only person I've heard actually a public person who's sort of gone against that, even very hesitantly, by the way, Bob Bailey agrees with that, with what I just said. And he's like the godfather there. You know, he was before Karen Pryor or anybody like that. Bob says, I try to control the environment, so I don't need to use punishment. That's great if you can control the environment. But you've got your military, tactical military working dog, special forces dog, and you say, I just need to control the, you know, imagine saying to your patrol commander, mate, you need to control the environment because my dog's not very obedient if there's a lot of distractions and competing motivations. You just look at you and go, what the fuck are you talking about, you idiot? You know, I don't have any control over the environment. You need to control your dog regardless of the circumstances. That is an extreme example, but it's the basic premise is there. And Karen Pryor, she makes an argument that the people don't do enough trials. And I think there's an element of truth to that. So there's one um, thing that I've got from Karen where she says two to 3,000 trials per skill set. Okay, so to give an example for the sit, two to 3,000 for the down, two mm-hmm. to 3,000, et cetera. Now, some smart ass. I'm saying that in a friendly way, calculated that if you followed Karen's doctrine, the dog would be seven years old before it would be trained. Mm. You don't have to use any compulsion, but it will take seven years to get enough trials to get it. And how are you going to tell anybody? I don't care whether they're law enforcement, domestic pet, you need to do two or 3,000 trials 
per skill set in order to get your dog to a point. Maybe you could do it with a completely force-free ideology if you were prepared to do thousands of trials on everything. But nobody is going to do that. It's completely unrealistic. And we live in the real world. And we all have aversives in our life. They're part of life. They're part of life for humans. It's what builds stress resilience. It's what builds competency. If you're protected in the ultimate helicopter parenting environment, you don't learn coping skills and therefore it's actually counterproductive. And Lindsay talks extensively about that. There's an absolutely great quote about Lindsay that learning to control appetitive and aversive consequences is a really important part in developing competency in the dog to develop empowerment in the dog and learning for the dog to learn to deal with challenges and stress in its environment in a positive way to be able to say I'm not afraid of bad things happening in my life because I've been through some stuff and I know how to deal with them and I know how to cope with them okay so there's just so many reasons why that whole ideology is just nonsensical and I forgive the people because they're either in my opinion ignorant and I'm using that to say, I don't think they're stupid and I don't think they're liars. I just think they're uneducated. So some of them are just honestly ignorant and uneducated. And there are a few people who are just misleading the public. And you know who I put at the top of that list. Yeah. I don't know whether we're mentioning names or not. In defense of some of, you know, friends of mine, I'll I'll say that there are people who are not uneducated. They're just wrongly educated because they see the, the bad versions you know, like, because as you said before, mate, there's plenty of people with big social media followings that are cranking dogs all over the place. And especially if that's your initial imprinting into what you see, then that's how you're going to feel about it. So Nando Brown is a really interesting example. Friend of the show has been on the show and me and him have kind of, we're almost the same character in a lot of ways. He's an ex-Royal Marine commando turned dog trainer. And yeah, we both share a lot of hobbies. We're both into cameras and all kinds of stuff. But his first experience with people that used e-collars was really brutal, yank and crank, really bad. And so his imprinting caused him to then say, hey, I don't want to do that. And even though now he sees and, and has put up posts about how not everyone's like that, that set him down a path of going a particular way. And mine was the opposite. Like my first impression with e-collars was like, you know, it was Bart. And so it just sets a different chain in motion and you can become like a totally different direction. And, and I think it's worth acknowledging that, that like it's, it's sometimes not a lack of education. It is education on like they saw the something terrible and that imprinted on them. And, you know, as dog trainers, we understand imprinting super well, right? Like you give that, you, that first experience can be super important to the, the rest of the dog's life, the course of his life, especially during that critical period. Oh, couldn't agree more. I agree with everything you just said. Well put. I remember years, about 25 years ago, um, when the NDTF course was in its infancy, a guy named Mick, I remember who he was. He's, I won't use his last name because he's a fairly well-known person. It's not Big Mick. Right? Yeah, this yep. is, uh, yeah, right. Just another guy who was also in the security industry back then. Anyway, he came and did the dog trainers course. And as soon as we talked about any aversives, he was out. You know, he didn't believe in correct. He wanted to be 100% positive only. And if you knew this guy, he was a barroom bouncer of some note mm-hmm. and had been in a lot of violent confrontations in his life and a hard, hard man, completely not the profile you would think that would be positive only. And I remember talking to Neville about to him about it because he knew Mick as well. And I said, what is it about what he's learned that makes him think this way? And he goes, it's not what he's learned. It's the absence of the education that yeah. makes him think that, which is in line with what you were saying. And uh, yeah, I definitely agree. And can I say that 
that hopefully once we get more education, and I think the NDTF's gone a long way to helping people have a little bit more of a balanced perspective. There was a time when there was a bit of a battle between the NDTF and the you would mm. know this well, right? And they were running their courses. They were lying, calling their course nationally recognised. We went to ASQA and complained about that and they agreed with us and told them you can't be saying that you've got a nationally recognised qualification. You don't have it. They pulled their pin. The NDTF ended up swamping them and, and really has become the sort of the standard, I suppose. But notwithstanding, the more education we can give people, balanced education and understanding, so they get the first good experience like you're talking about there, mate. And uh, I think will be heading down the path. And yeah, we've got to be careful about that. We've got to consciously show that. I mean, when I'm talking about the e-collar, you know, notwithstanding that it's got to be conditioned and stuff, I really say that the only real time I'm using the e-collar in the way that people would traditionally think about it, using it as a corrective tool in that one-dimensional model, because I use it in a quite diverse and complex way, not the same way that Bart uses it, but sophisticated way like Bart uses it, Mm -hmm. okay? And I'm only mentioning Bart because we all know that Bart has quite a sophisticated model around the... um, around the process. I don't follow that same doctrine, but they're compatible, put it that way. Yeah. And the way to do that is to at least say to people, the only time I'm using the e-collar for any real corrections is once the dog is fully trained, it's had loads of experience, it's really well educated, it totally knows, and I'm using this in, in commas here, guys, right from wrong, properly educated, don't take that term too literally, just using it figuratively. And then I need that dog to be that very reliable under distractions and competing motivations. And I've got to add some compulsive elements into the equation. But the dog completely knows, A, what it could and should do. B, that there are consequences attached. C, it knows exactly what it can do to avoid any aversives. And therefore, anytime the aversive is put in play, the dog simply goes, I know what I could have done. I know what I should have done. I know that I caused that. I know it's mine. And that's why you don't see any adverse reactions. The only reaction we see almost all the time when we use e-collars, which is a lot, you know, we use our e-collars a lot. And just so you know, guys, just for the purpose, we set up and, and develop the course for the police, both federal police and state police for the use of the e-collars and ran their training programs and the prisons and lots of agencies and organisations come through our e-collar training programs, including domestic organisations, you know, breed clubs and uh, local obedience clubs and, and all of those things. They, they bring their people here and we run an e-collar education sort of program. But once they realise that it's only at the final element and only in very specific context and only when the dog is properly educated and only with the right dog, they go, well, actually, now that I look at it like that, it seems pretty reasonable. And I think that's directly in line with what you said a few minutes ago, Pat, is yeah, that totally. if you get the right education to begin with and you're not shocked by it, you go, well, in that case, I'm okay with it, you know, yeah. but that's just not what I imagined was the case. Yeah. And I think it's it's worth acknowledging as well, when everybody does have the good information available to them, people can still follow their conscience, you know, like you train dogs, however it's effective. There's plenty of people who don't use the tools, don't call themselves force-free trainers, just don't want to use the tools that can fucking train circles around half the planet. Like Sarah Bruski is the one that comes to mind. Like mm. we're all lucky she doesn't use any tools and chooses the harder way to do it or she'd fucking clean the streets, right? Like she just chooses not to. So like good for her. I mean, fuck, I'm enamored by her training. It's some of the best in the world. If you layered the pressure over the top of that, she just doesn't want to. 
So like, that's cool too. I think that's important to note. That's a good choice selection of, of people to think it, of. Yep. I agree. It does come back to the point that Glenn made previously. I've heard him talk about the podcast where it takes an incredible amount of time to uh, really learn to be a dog trainer. I don't want to mention names here, although Bart is one of the names of, that I've heard who's talked about this, where people say questions like, you know, how did you train the dog to do that sort of thing? The answer is a 1,000 hours or yeah. 2,000 hours of training. You know, the amount of work that goes into producing a really high-quality dog, and I know you guys have rammed that home in multiple, uh, again, that was a big part of the conversation with Dave. I agree with you is that people just don't understand how long it takes. And what I'm suggesting is that the conscientious and appropriate use of some aversive incentives, some pressure, however you want to word it, can speed that process up massively and produce increased reliability. It's only scientific common sense to say that it will improve the learning because there are multiple mechanisms in the brain that are being applied. The dog is not only doing it now to access a reward, which is a very important pathway, it's also doing it to avoid aversive. So now it has a double motivation. And that's a massive oversimplification of the reality of what's going on. But for the sake of this discussion, it'll do the job. So more effective, more permanent, more resilient, broader and deeper learning. So cross-pollinates, transfers better, etc. We've been at this for over two hours. <laughs> we got to sure. wind it up. What's in the future for you? What's going on? Tell us what's next. Deeper education, higher education in dog training is what I'm about. So I still think that the NDTF course or something like that, or whether it's doing something with whomever, starting to get an education, that's fine. But I, I still think that we want to move into that deep learning and put ourselves on par with other proper professions. So they look at us in the same way that they look at each other. And I think that we're, we can move towards that. And hopefully at a global scale, not just a national scale. So stay tuned. And next time I come back, we can talk about that in more detail. Great idea. Glenn, go to think that. There's been plenty of dialogue between all of us, um, especially Boyd, which has been great because he's been a guest on the show, mate. I just want to thank you very much for coming on. As you said at the start, it's good to have controversial conversations. I think a lot of times, not just in dog training, let's remove dog training from the conversation, but just in humanity, especially now, there's a lot of things that, that people feel that they can't talk about anymore and there is no more open dialogue, especially Pat and I have been opposed to that type of thinking we like to try and open a can not deliberately to open a can of worms to insult people that's not what we're about but what we're about i believe and it's nice that we can have these conversations and it can still be tough and it can still be difficult but we can still maybe agree to disagree but still have an intelligent conversation around subject matters anyway and it still provokes processes of thought that we can go away and we can think about things and come back and say, hmm, well, that's probably something that I never really considered and I don't know why. Maybe I need to look into that a little bit more deeply. You know, for my ongoing education, that's what I really like about having conversations with people and sometimes people that I've disagreed with in the past have been that sometimes they've shed light on things for me that I would never have considered or never really have walked down that path. But I'm proud to say that sometimes I'm open-minded enough to allow that to seep in. That's why we're all here. I think otherwise you're finished in any industry. It's all over for you. You've come to the end of something that you, you possibly had more opportunities in. Well said. Couldn't have put it better myself.
Boyd, thanks so much for your time, mate. Really appreciate you doing it. It's been an honor and a privilege to talk to you for this 200th episode. Mm. Like I said, it's been a long time coming. You've been the man that's talked about and now finally talked to. So thank you so much for making the time. My pleasure. Congratulations on 200, guys, and uh, look forward to coming back again sometime down the track. And we had our biggest month ever in downloads for October. We smashed all the records again. Congratulations to us. Yes. <laughs> all right. That's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. Do that through whatever subscription service you download us from. Oh, before we do that, Boyd, yeah. where do we find out about you? Yeah. People want to contact you. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, don't have any social me- I don't have any social media presence at all, not on Facebook or Twitter or anything like that. Company name, um, website. Yeah, they can get to me at info at task9.com.au info at task9.com.au and look at the task9 website as one way of getting there. But uh, yeah, that would probably be the best way and stand by. We've got some really good things coming. I've got some associations with other organizations and entities with relation to developing this higher education sort of stuff. So there is stuff there. If um, But look, I'll tell you what I'll do is once anything of significance comes out, I'll let you guys know and you can just do it as a bit of follow-up and help us get the word out there. Perfect. All right. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is to jump into our Patreon. A couple bucks a month gets you extra content in there. You know, you can give as much as you like. The other way to support the show is Teespring. You can mm-hmm. jump in there and buy yourself some cool merch, underpants, wall tapestry, that kind of thing. Socks, undies. Socks, yeah. Yep. And if you want to get in contact with us, the best way to do that is jump into our Facebook discussion groups, the Canine Paradigm discussion group, group source information in there, do a little search. Someone's probably already asked the question that you're asking for. Or if you want to shoot us an email, we are info at the Thank you, sir. Goodbye.